Okay, says we're live. I'm going to make sure that we actually are on all of the different places because this is first time. This is the first time I've dual streamed in years. Okay, we're I on do Twitch. It every week. Hi, everyone out there. Good. Hopefully, it's dual streaming like, <coughs> like a boss. Yes, and we're on YouTube. Awesome. Okay, uh, everyone in chats, please let me know if y'all can hear and see us okay. Um, we should be all good, but we're not going to waste any time because. <laughs> there is so much to do yeah there's so much we're gonna try and cover uh this episode it's not even funny so uh hope you're all doing well welcome back to uh lore beers this is super exciting uh we are just doing a full lore episode dedicated to malekith we're not doing any of that real world bs uh <laughs> we're just going straight warhammer lore so um Without further ado, uh, thanks to Andy so much for being here. You're on this side. Uh, Andy, <laughs> so much for being here. Uh, I do want to give a quick shout out because it's literally what I was doing right before the stream. If you haven't, please go check out uh, Lawhammer. Uh, they are doing a lot of Warhammer Fantasy lore-related stuff through uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition. It's insane. I just finished uh, another of the Tales of Uversreich and like, oh my god, <laughs> the bombs. The bombs that keep dropping. <laughs> Do enjoy the good old tales of right and Lohammer in general. Do make sure you do pop by us if you like your Warhammer fantasy played out in a role-playing environment, because it's freaking awesome if I do say so myself as GM. Yeah, uh, and I agree very much as literally just a viewer. So yeah, no, it's amazing. Um, but in any event, we're here to talk about uh one particular character from the Warhammer Fantasy Universe. Today Whoa. we are doing Malekith deconstructed. So uh me and Andy were kind of just uh shooting the shit one time randomly and mm -hmm. kind of throwing around ideas and Malekith came up and we both kind of talked about mm -hmm. that Malekith in a lot of ways is kind of one of the most important characters in Warhammer Fantasy. It really um, is. So it was like of course we should do a chat on him because when me and him start talking time passes very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of start and then it's 5 hours later and we're just sitting there going should we hang up? Should we hang up? We should right. probably Hang up. <laughs> yeah, so um, we're just going to jump right into it of Malekith the Witch King kind of talking about uh, various topics that are involved with him. We are not going to do what we might do in the future on some other characters where we like break down their history because Malekith's history is so fucking long that it we really would is. not get to, like I sent Andy what I would call like the most abridged version possible and it was like a just a paragraph of text <laughs> of like here's all the things that I think could be important and I skipped a shitload um he's a so. funny old character because there's parts of his history where maybe a thousand years pass and stuff is happening and so hmm. little details in there a thousand years worth of what um and yeah super fascinating character because of that yeah, so deal. So that's probably the number one thing to deal with. Um, kind of right out the gate is Malekith is old. Like, yes. it, it's it's easy to kind of forget how old he is, but like I think he is the second or third oldest living elf still alive. Um, not including like Kalidor, Dragon Tamer, and all his buddies cheating in the vortex. That's just but, cheap, yeah, because <laughs> they're more stuck in time as opposed to actively participating. So um, that's probably the most important thing to kind of kick off with is Malekith. I want to say he is somewhere in the ballpark now of what, like 8,000 years old? Is it that long? Uh, let's see. The Great War Against Chaos ended. Oh, no. I think he's more like 6,000. Yeah, that'd be like a little 6, bit closer. You'd be yeah. looking around about, yeah, about 6,000. Yeah. Um, so the only reason that's fresh in my mind is because I've been dating out for some other characters from my own game. And yeah, around about 6,000 plus. 
Yeah, so looking at kind of the the ch uh, challenges about that, especially like dealing with the character's impact on the setting and challenges for writers, is that um, we have Malekith, who's born very close to the end of the Great Incursion, um, which that's probably where we actually need to start, is the Great Incursion. So uh, Chaos comes into the world. It's actually about seven. 7,000? 7, yeah. <laughs> I'm no, no, still you're counting in my head. You're, you're all good. Um, you know what? I, I could be, I literally have, like, I was like, I'm going to make sure I have all my books next to me just in case I need to reference anything. But um, uh, probably the most important thing to start with is the state of the elves when Malekith is born and his parents because they have a insanely dramatic impact on what he uh, becomes later in life. Because Malekith, as we all know, is kind of, uh, very much a product of his parents in that he's kind of one of the last quote unquote true elves um, before they start being kind of dramatically impacted by everything that happens. So uh, I hit my yeah, so <laughs> probably best to start with dad uh, because he's a little bit more of a, uh, he's a slightly more contained story because he does us the favor of dying relatively quickly. <laughs> so uh, Anarian. Before we, be before we begin, can I just add yes. one little extra detail as well? Go for it. Uh, Malekith is not only old in terms of the character and where he started in the setting all the way 7,000 years ago, he's also old in terms of the overall setting as well, given that he was brought in um, during the Dark Elf army list for, what, 4th edition uh, Warhammer. And the Dark Elves back then are very different to the Dark Elves that we have today. Very similar in many ways. Um, but all the way back then, there wasn't really this great pantheon of elven gods. Um, there was pretty much just a couple that they ported in from 40k, kind of almost, which actually originally came from Warhammer anyway, um, and were then ported over. And Chaos Gods. And because of that, the influence of Chaos on the earlier Dark Elves is stark, heavy, and never really went away because of that. And when they added in all the extra gods and all the extra complexity that came with the darker side of the of the elven pantheon, um, that never really sunk in properly into how they wrote Malekith, Marathi, and all the rest on mm. the long term. Um, so uh, if you're looking at the overall characters and the gods that they have, then you'll find that there's a lot of holes there that have been papered over and have been sort of, sort of covered to a degree, but they still bear to this day the original stories that were written all the way back to the original army list, which very much are heavily Slanesh dominated without any real impact mm. on the wider pantheon. And Malekith himself and his mum and all the stories that work around that are really quite different to the stories that they probably told if they started telling them now, because they would have had mm. a far stronger uh, influence from all the Dark Elf uh, side of the pantheon. Um, if you look at those. But that all said, over to Anarian. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree. But and there are there are subjects we're gonna hit where we're gonna have to really talk about how Malekith fits in because it gets a little weird. But uh so yeah, Anarian the Defender, uh the big bad first Phoenix King, uh, because a lot of people may not necessarily know elves when they were just elves, uh there weren't any breakdowns. You know, they got set up on Ulthuan, they literally had paradise given to them. Uh, by the old ones, the old ones, uh, the Slon taught them magic. They literally learned from Lord Croak and like all these other really important things. And they were a very matriarchal society. They had the Ever Queens going back further than even the elves remember. Um, but they didn't have kings. They just had the Ever Queen. And yeah. life was a lot more chill. And then the demons came and things got really bad. 
And the elves in particular were caught in kind of a worse situation than most anybody else because the humans were kind of able to scatter into the forest, uh, the very early humans, um, scatter into the forest and the mountains and hide away and stuff like that. And the they didn't really have like big civilization that the demons were drawn to. The dwarves fled under the mountains. Um, obviously the dwarves had a really, really bad time, but you know, they dropped a mountain and sealed themselves away and that worked for them. The elves didn't really have anything to protect them other than the ocean. And when the lizardmen did a really good job holding chaos at bay for a really long time, like thousands of years, but eventually they got pushed back and the lizardmen retreat to Lustria and were like, good luck <laughs> because what else could they do? So the elves, um, which I mean, they literally paradise. So think of it. There was no war. Really, like they were hunters, the elves. They had like hunting spears and bows. They weren't really super complex. And then chaos hits them with like a steel hammer and things get really bad. So I'll, I'll add in a small extra detail in there just to give a slight um, aside as well. And that's hmm. that um, if you look at the elven stories from that time, they don't mention really the lizardmen at all. Um, hmm. And it's worth always balancing out individual species beliefs with the overall picture as well. Where they, when they look back at their history, as far as they were concerned, the gods, they are the children of the gods and their mother was speaking to them all the time, Isha, hmm. um, doing the thing. Um, and as far as they were concerned, um, they were blessed by the gods, given this holy, beautiful paradise um, to play with by the gods. And then the gods fucked off. Um, yeah, for reasons, and they have their own individual beliefs for why that occurred. The lizardmen obviously have a very different set of beliefs for why that occurred. But what is certain is chaos came and really fucked with their party. Yeah, and there is, and we're, we're we just don't have time to get into it. But there, one day we will have to do an episode talking about God specifically because the elven gods mm. are easily one of the most fascinating things of like where do old ones and elven gods intersect but they're clearly not the same thing but they are kind of the same thing uh but they're also very much not <laughs> but like there's a whole thing there anyway so uh anarian um he is the the easiest way to kind of tldr him uh the too long didn't read for him <laughs> is that anarian was a fairly gifted leader and warrior he wasn't anything like too amazing but he was good enough that he was able to get maybe some small victories but the demons were ultimately just annihilating the elves it was not going well and really the only thing that kind of saved the elves in those early days was that slanesh seemed to kind of be the dominant force going after the elves nakari in particular being kind of the overall general and nakari liked playing with his food um he was very slow and they were having fun as opposed to trying to wipe them out um, and Anarian goes to the gods who have seemingly abandoned them and basically begs to assure in the king of the gods to intervene, to get involved. And he hears silence and he, he makes animal offerings. He hears silence. They do prayers. They get silence. Anarian finally just reaches his limit and he throws himself into the flame of Ashurin itself at the shrine of Ashurin, the holiest site where Ashurin's power is supposedly physically in the world. And he literally dies. <laughs> he he is burnt to an actual crisp uh and he full-on dies um but after he dies his life kind of resparks because i guess that was an, and i'll allow andy to really expand on this that seemed to be enough for assurance or at least to get assurance attention and i'll add a little extra detail um yes yeah, since you asked um this wasn't the first time it happened um, it's actually detailed in a relatively old roleplay book that the gods themselves, as far as the elves are concerned, sometime previous, before they left the world, 
we're at an ex almost exactly the same place as what Inarian was several centuries later. And that's what, that basically, the Chaos Gods had defeated them. They were fleeing the world, and Azurin was dead. And then the gods retreated up his pyramid, and then Azurin returned to lay waste all around and told the remaining gods to flee the world and never return again. So the concept of Azurin dying and coming back was already a thing. Um, mm. Inarian casting himself into that flame, in some respects, was repeating what Azurin himself had done previously, killing himself for the greater good of his people in the hope that Azurin, a god who had been completely silent, they all thought possibly was dead, yet his flame was still burning, um, and was their only hope of survival, and turns out, he was. Yeah, which, Azurin, the phoenix, very heavily wrapped up in all that. Um, uh, phoenix is rebirth. Yeah. Uh, so Anarian comes back and he's not just Anarian anymore. He is Anarian with literally most or a, at least a significant amount of assurance power in him. Yeah, I think um, a, a good way of looking at it is look at, at as much as this may be heresy to say for some is look at the end times material mm -hmm. um, and look at how effectively some uh, folks around the Warhammer world became avatars of various gods. He effectively became an avatar of Azurin in a similar fashion to what, say, Ariel was or Orion was over in yeah. Wood, mm. uh, much, much later in that they were avatars for certain elven gods. And at this point, Inarian returned as an avatar of Azurin and ladeth the waste. <laughs> yes, so uh, he starts kicking the crap out of the demons. He's doing really, really well, but there is the ultimate problem, which is that Anarian can't be anywhere at once, everywhere at once. And if there's one thing Chaos has going for it and that it has going for it throughout the entirety of Warhammer Fantasy's um, narrative, and the, I think the history of the game as well, is that Chaos is endless. It is, you, you can't really effectively kill it without getting into some really crazy scenarios. Uh, so while an could keep beating the demons and he would maybe even beat them badly enough where he'd win a small amount of peace, you know, there'd be like a 30 year peace or a 50 year peace. Um, ultimately the demons would always come back and eventually, um, when an and, and this gives us time enough where Caldor dragon tamer starts exploring the world and he starts like learning, he, you know, he meets the dwarves for the first time. Uh, he meets, um, uh, Grimnir, and they have their little exchange and all this stuff where, you know, Kalidor learns that the demons are coming from the very far north, and Grimnir learns uh, some other shenanigans, and they go their separate ways, and yada yada. But this builds up to um, when Anarian is not able to be where he needs to be one day, uh, his wife is killed. The Everqueen is murdered and killed by Nakari, the biggest baddest of the Keeper of Secrets, and it's believed that his children are killed as well, and Anarian loses it um understandably he's pushed to the brink of despair and the way he breaks is that he decides to go full nuclear weapon um and he goes to the shrine of the widowmaker uh the shrine of cain where he draws the sword of cain the widowmaker which is uh canonically to my understanding the strongest weapon in warhammer fantasy um, yeah, I mean, um, that was, depending on which story you believe, perhaps the the weapon that Cain uh, had made for him to literally kill gods during the earlier War of the Gods, where uh, the Chaos Gods had beaten yeah, the, the war gods back, as mm. I mentioned before. And this is um, reflected over into 40k, for those of you who know that as well, because there was quite a lot of bleed between the two during the course of particularly 4th through up to about 7th, maybe 6th, and then he sort of split them again. Um, but there was a lot of bleed in that period. 
And it is worth saying that it was probably the last of the hundred swords that Vol had made, the one that was the proper god killer. And it was bluntly awful. Absolutely freaking awful. And was the weapon that probably slayed a bunch of gods during an earlier period, if you believe in the elven divine aspects that are put forward by, say, for example, Fenrir in the Book of Days. Right. So uh, this is where we really start actually getting to Malekith-related stuff, is that Anarian, when he draws the sword, he changes uh, a fair bit. Um, drawing the Sword of Cain comes with a lot of consequences, which Anarian was warned about repeatedly. Um, there's actually a really, really cool audio drama, if any of y'all are ever bored and want to listen to, that's literally about Anarian going to draw the Sword of Cain and all the different gods like whispering him, telling him not to do it. Um, Palador telling him not to do it. Um, everyone's telling him, no, don't do this. Like it's, it's going to be bad, but he decides, screw it. I'm going to, because he wants to just kill chaos for revenge. Um, so he draws the sword and yes, it makes him unstoppable, literally unstoppable. Um, but it starts to also have some really bad negative effects. Um, there's actually some really interesting stuff in the Libra Chaotica about, what you know where a character posits the idea what happens to a mortal when you stuff two god essentially the power of two gods into one soul yeah. um and the answer is not good <laughs> um and it wasn't just poor old denarian that were was doomed it was in his entire line yes that was it um it wasn't arguably just denarian that was doomed it was his entire species for having the temerity of doing this um, and the curse was something that was whispered in his ears, as was mentioned all the way through. And he picked that up. Admittedly, in despair, good old elves, as we know, have far higher, stronger felt emotions than almost everyone else. So when we're thinking, oh, no, he's a bit sad, he's not. He's over. He's completely he, he's out of his mind. He's, yeah. he's, he's on the edge of insanity already. When he draws that weapon, he will listen to nobody. Because he's gone beyond that point. There's a reason that uh, Stonex loves chasing down those elven souls. They're super tasty! Um, because of all the mm. emotions that they uh, feel and bleed through into the aether over into the other side. Um, and and that was it. Doom! Yeah, and it, and yeah, and he's 100% right in that the Curse of Cain is it is a bonkers like it's it's a powerful weapon but it literally comes with like the it it, it wasn't a secret to an Aaron either he just didn't care at that point of it doomed a lot of that it at that moment had a un un irreversible effect on the entire elven race because he kind of essentially signed a contract by drawing that sword and it really screwed up anyone descended from him um and introduced like an unavoidable flaw, which is what the curse of Cain is known as in universe. Like it's a known thing to the elves where uh, we'll talk a little bit more later, but like in later generations, the, those that are descended from an Aryan have to essentially be inspected um, at least among the Asur to make sure they're not, the curse of Cain is not presenting itself in too dangerous of a way, which like there's an implication that if it did, they would potentially kill those children, which yeah, is terrifying. Um, because the other half of the curse of Cain is while it comes with terrible penalties, it also grants insane power. Um, like all the descendants of, of an Aryan have problems, but they also are amazingly gifted at something. Um, what's particularly interesting about that is yes, there's the inspection tales, but there is literally no example of any child ever being, uh, let's say, killed. 
just to be blunt about it. Yeah. Um, indeed, um, it, it's almost like it being mostly on the Azure side, a power play. Um, mm. it's, it's an attempt to control. It's an attempt to politically maneuver their way around what is potentially the most, uh, let's say, famous bloodline that the elves have. Because this is the direct bloodline of their first Phoenix King. And every other prince them out of the Ten Kingdoms are going to be going, yeah, no, no, yeah. keep those people down. It's quite likely, for all there is those dark tales that sit around it, are they killing them? They didn't kill a single one. It was just nothing more than a method of controlling this extraordinarily powerfully, politically powerful line that could rise up and potentially push them all aside. Yeah, and I, that's uh, a point that's actually really well made in the Tyrion and Teclis omnibus uh mm. of that uh you really get the feeling that it's not as much about oh we're worried about this thing like this child becoming a horrible murderer it's more about we're worried that if this child has very strong like political ambitions that could threaten us yeah. and the asher like god like when it comes to politics the asher are like head and above the other elves which is saying a yeah. lot <laughs> because other elves are already crazy um so this is where we get Anarian Malekith's dad. Uh, is after he's drawn the Widowmaker, that is the man who elf who will become his father. <laughs> and it's it's worth talking about this point that one of the really awesome points uh, brought up, kind of in the Liber Chaotica, but it's uh, I think worth exploring at this point is that Anarian, like the actual the original Anarian, his personality, his emotions, everything, essentially gets crushed beneath these gods. Of that, if you were to meet a Narian, he probably wouldn't even feel like a person. Um, right. because he's more like a puppet of Ashurin and Kane, who are very much wrestling for control and don't like each other. Um, Ashurin and Kane are not friends. Yeah, um, um, I think that a, a really good way for you to try and imagine this, if you're looking at the overall setting and at the characters you might know better, take a look at just how different Orion is from a normal elf. Mm. how massively different Orion is. Now, this is someone who's obviously carried his particular, let's say, divinity for much longer, and it had slowly but surely manifested in different ways. But nevertheless, the king of the wood, or indeed the queen of the wood, enormously different from the elves over which they rule in the same fashion here. And Arian just was not a mortal elf anymore. It was something quite beyond anything any of them could... Uh, really understand and after that sorry business became someone known for his bouts of anger his odd court and well good old mum to be yeah so um with his family now dead and um and the other thing is an Aryan was very isolated at this point um calador leaves like calador was his best friend his advisor cal and calador full-on um Abandoned isn't the right word because I think Cal for Calador it was like a mental health thing. He literally couldn't be around an Aryan anymore. Yeah, because an Aryan. Yeah, because um, an Aryan set up his court in Nagareth, and the court of Nagareth was notorious for its cruelty, and it's a very dark, horrible place that none of the other elves like to go visit. Um, and the dark elves of Nagareth become a reflection of an Aryan. You know, they're around him all the time. They embrace his way of life because the, the elves love him. Like he is a great hero, but other elves are kind of like, Ugh. like that canine side of him really starts to shine. Um, and I think, I think it's worth noting here um, to what I said at the beginning of the stream, how the dark elf gods, as we come to know them, are dismissed through this entire period in most of the write-ups. Mm -hmm. But really, if we look at it and if we were writing it again, this is where we would deeply dive into 
um, everything that is the Dark Elf deities and what they came to reflect in Nagarath. Um, because the society that they built up was just all of those gods. And they were ignoring a huge chunk of the gods that lay atop. Mm. Um, and they had a very different opinion uh, as to how elf society should represent. But at this point, it wasn't, this is the only way to be. This was just how we are, and you can be how you are elsewhere. But this is how we are, particularly because Anarian himself was very much prone to, as we know, bouts of, let's say, cane stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He is like, although he's very much seen as a hero and stuff, there are little bits. If you, uh, it's actually kind of surprising how much reading between the lines you have to do for it. But yeah. Anarian is like borderline abusive to the people around him, not yeah. intentionally per se. It's more like he loses control and does some horrible stuff when he loses control. Um, but so this leads to his isolation. He's completely alone, essentially. Like he doesn't have any equals or anyone that can really hold his ear. And yeah, sure, he's slaughtering the demons, but you know, Kalidor is now obsessed with trying to find a different way to end the war because Anarian has settled for the status quo. Um, he's like, he can't just go up and fight the dark gods and kill them. Um, so he's really just kind of defending all he rides out, fights the demons, and then retreats to Anlek and broods in his fortress. Um so then one day he defeats a particular chaos army, mostly of Slanesh demons, and he saves Marathi. We don't know where the hell Marathi came from <laughs> exactly. At least I don't off the top of my head. All the, the only thing I remember is that she was a seeress. Like she was gifted with uh, prophecy and magic. Uh, potions in particular, when you look at some of her first descriptions, because uh, throughout the course of the early war against demons with Anarian, after he had picked up the sword, she was responsible for caring for him. When he went into the worst bouts of madness, she was the one that prepared the potions that helped him calm down and helped bring his court into a state of balance, so to speak. In many respects, you could look back at it and say that Marathi was slowly but surely taking control. Or alternatively, if you want to take a different reading of Marathi, you could easily see that she was in love and she was trying to help him. She saw this great hero. This was her one great love. And she was attempting to take him through what was, quite frankly, an absolute catastrophe for the individual man. Um, because for all he had taken on these godlike powers, he was not just broken, he was breaking further. And Marathi mm. was the one that stopped him breaking. So for all, it's very easy to look at Marathi and ascribe immediate, oh, she was this and she was manipulative and she was all these things. It's just as easy to say, without her, the elves would have died. Because yeah. Inarian himself would have fallen completely. So one thing I think it's interesting to kind of answer, because it's it's very much left up in the air, is what... So we know Anarian, like, finally fully notices and kind of meets Marathi when he saves her from the demons of Slanesh. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. kind of the question that the lore kind of posits, and it, it definitely seems very much from it, like the, the Hiles being like, ah, we... Is, is, was she there because she had been captured, or did she want to be there? um like had she made a deal with the demons which we know she does a lot later and like it went sour was she legitimately captured or was she in control of the situation and used it to meet an Aryan? yeah and uh, that was never answered and i think that's very much probably never going to be answered by games workshop unless one day they decide to do so <laughs> because yeah. they are but, want to do in that um but yeah, i think it's leading a mystery, 
yeah, leaving it a mystery in many respects makes it better because then that adds this air of mystery around Marathi in general. Um, a pawn or perhaps a manipulator or perhaps completely different, someone who was just caught up in the events completely. We all know that later on she does get wrapped up in the cult of pleasures. But again, is that nothing more than the classic dark elf manipulation and use of what they see as contemptuous chaos powers? As far as they're concerned, the chaos powers are nothing more than something to be used. Mm. They're something to potentially be afraid of. For example, one doesn't want to get eaten by Slanesh, but that doesn't mean that you won't use them. And indeed, that is very much reflected, as we'll go on to later when we discuss, say, for example, Nakari. Nakari, who effectively becomes a slave to them. Yes. So uh, they become married rather quickly, and their relationship is actually very fast and furious, um, mm. especially by elf standards. Even by human standards, it's actually not, um, it's not brief. Uh, mm. like you have this war that's lasted for hundreds if not thousands of years the time between anarians the everqueen dying and the end of the war is only like yeah. 30 years or something yeah, like it, that it's very it, short it skims by in no time at all yeah yeah so um marathi from all sources that we have at least kind of the more modern sources i don't know about the older lore she is like super head over heels for anarian she loves yeah. him genuinely I'll jump in on this one because um, they've they've jumped on different ways on this one because Marathi's character and Inarian's character has changed over time. To begin with, it was pure speculation and it was history so far back that no one can be sure and it's nothing more than the myth of their relationship then counterbalanced with the reality of what Marathi is today. And she's mm. hell. Um, and so it's very easy for uh, the historians to look back and say, well, Marathi was completely manipulating him from day one. We high elves, we're the best. And she was the worst, where that hmm. story adapted into, no, she was head over heels in love. And I think to a degree that's run all the way through to Age of Sigmar, where still yeah. Anarian yeah. pops up. She's like... <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God! Oh, oh. Um, or alternatively, look at the end times when oh wait a minute, Tyrion, Tyrion is nothing more than my my, my husband reborn. Um, and she goes mental. Now, is that necessarily the one way that that looks pretty clear to cut to me? On the other side, they also dirtied up the relationship with Anarian to Marathi, where to begin with, it was clear her beauty completely enthralled him. He was hmm. head over heels in love. But that sort of got muddied up when they started going, well, perhaps it was the Sword of Cain that made him start thinking these things, that made him um, uh, accept her where he wouldn't have done previously. Was there any real love there? Was there anything at all inside that cold, dark heart of Inarians? Um, and I think that in some respects, they almost destroyed the romance with later parts because they realized that some of it didn't really support the Marathi that they had built, where she was a proper monster, forgetting that there was 7,000 years of difference between those two characters, 7,000 years worth of failures and hatreds and loves and ups and downs that can change a character, not just slightly, but fundamentally. Um, yeah. And, mm. and, and, You'll find, I think it was, uh, was it Blood of Anarian, the book by William King? I think, yes. mm -hmm. I think, as I recall, it's been a while since I read that one, but um, they very much dirtied the water there and very much said, yeah, that's, yeah. So that was about, uh, that's what I was about to say is that oh, in perfect. that book, it's a, it's very, it's flat out stated that Marathi very much loves Anarian, but it's mm. Anarian, the way they kind of paint it is that Anarian loved his first wife, he lusts for Marathi. Like yeah. he kind of fills that void left behind by his first family dying with her. 
but because of like the influence of Kane, he's abusive. Like it very strongly implies that like Marathi kind of makes excuses for it, but Anarian beats her a few times, or like he is he's an abusive husband. Um, because yeah. he just has these like not all the time, but he just has these explosive moments of anger. And Marathi kind of fawns over him and excuses it, but you know, it's kind of this unhealthy dynamic. And there's this really uh important scene where Anarian finds out what Calder is going to do. He finds out that Calder is going to create the Vortex, which Anarian told him not to. Anarian mm-hmm. hates the Vortex plan. There's a lot of really cool stuff in Libra Chaotica about how Anarian might be very heavily influenced by a Sharon and Kane who might like that they have uh, a physical presence in the world. And so the Vortex would be kind of bad for them. Um, so they might not totally be on par with that plan, whereas maybe the original Anarian would have been, but he's getting you know suppressed if he's even there anymore. Um, so Caldor goes through with the plan anyway. He doesn't tell Anarian, he goes through with it. Anarian finds out as the demons are coming down on top of Calador because they find out what he's doing and they're like, oh shit. Um, yeah. so Anarian has a split moment decision where he has to decide does he go support Calador and defend him to for the vortex, or does he leave him to die? Um, and Anarian's pissed at Calador, like like he's raving, and Marathi tries to convince him to stay. Because yep. she has enough prophecy and enough wisdom that she knows she's seen the future that if an Aryan goes to the vortex, he's going to die. Yep. Um, and there's no avoiding it. And she begs him. She begs him not to go. And he's like, you know, he's kind of on the fence about it because he's angry. And she tells him, you know, we can manipulate the powers of chaos. I've been delving into these secrets. I've been binding demons. I know things. We will survive. And one thing that I think is really core to Marathi's character is her obsession with survival at any cost. Yeah, and I think also her obsession with Anarian. Um, yeah. uh, I think uh, uh, obsession, she's an elf, so clearly she's going to have a different set of emotional um, beginning points to us. So I feel almost uncomfortable saying obsession because obsession is often uh, tied close to in unstable mental health. Um, but I think from her perspective, she's just an elf and she is completely in love. And her man is going to walk off to um, his death. And if you want to see uh, an elf who clearly is not working um, uh, from the perspective of being just a bad guy, you could argue it's her. Um, Because she's really thinking about keeping her family unit, as it has been built, alive. Um, And that's cool. But you could argue, and I think that some other later writers did always hint that, um, that she was being influenced by, say, Slanesh, who did not want that vortex to go up um mm-hmm. and i personally don't like that as a story um it is yeah, one most legitimately there yeah um I, I but i don't think it's the best story because a far better story is to see what marathi was and what she becomes through the various steps of her life in the same way for anarian and in exactly the same way as we move on to with malekith yeah which speaking of which Malekith has entered the story. <laughs> He's been born. It only, it only took us 30 minutes, but we got there. <laughs> so it's going to be a long stream. <laughs> yeah. Malekith is born into this environment. Uh, and Malekith, so Malekith is only born like less than a decade before Anarian's death, maybe a little more. Um, but he's I like it's a bit more because he's got he's got memories of his father. So uh, yeah, decade, but, I don't think it's quite enough. Um, I can't remember yeah. how long it is. Um, but you know, at best case scenario, like if Marathi, if Marathi and Anarian got straight to business after they met, and like there was no time wasted, then Malekith at best is in his twenties. But it's, I think it's implied that he's a fair bit younger than that when Anarian dies, because his memories of Anarian are very fuzzy. Um, like there's there, uh, Malekith has a recollection. Um, I want to say in 
it's either in the Sundering series or the Tyrion and Tecla series, but Malekith does have some recollection of his father, but it talks about how he only remembers kind of like playing or sitting at the bottom of his father's throne and looking up at his dad. Yeah, I, as I recall, I'm just running off the top of my head, I seem to recall that I built a timeline for this. I think he might have been as much in his 30s. Um, mm. But I, I wouldn't mind checking that up before seeing that, um, in that I seem to recall, because we did a little bit about how old elves are in terms of their emotional development and how quickly they change. Um, and yeah, I think it's 30s, but... Yeah, it could be. It it doesn't really matter. He's young. That's yeah. that's the important yeah, thing. Yeah, He's very totally. very young. Um, and so that so Malik is burned into this. Um, his parents don't necessarily. It's I would say it's fair to say his parents don't have the healthiest relationship. Um, yeah, they don't. And and Anlek is not a great place to raise a kid. <laughs> it's it's not. Um, uh, it was a dark and shadowy place, kind of at the best of times. Um, and I think they tend to they tended to revel in things that probably weren't healthy for little Malachi's development. Um. <laughs> again, again, not to be judgmental, just because I like to bring in a different angle if we can. Um, it's a different morality, a different species. Mm. You could argue that as far as they were concerned, it was nowhere near as bad as what we, with our current moralities, would look in and say, that is unacceptable. Um, I would say that the worst part of it all probably was dad. Yeah. Probably dad. Because and, dad is almost, he's like a drunken, abusive husband um, yeah. who clearly loves his wife, but is also often one raving about his friends, raving about what he perceives to be the enemies that should be his allies all around him. And then going off and doing things that he just doesn't agree with. He's the freaking king. Why aren't they listening to him? Yeah, which, and we know that uh, Malekith was not immune to elf propaganda. And also, it's his, it's his dad. Like, Malekith loves his dad. And that's the most important thing to start with now that we're finally talking about him, is Malekith is completely obsessed with Anarian's legacy. Um, and also just Anarian himself. And Malekith didn't get a lot of attention from his father. Um, like, there are a few scenes about Anarian and Malekith, and Anarian didn't really seem to talk to him a lot. Um, or, like, when he did talk to him, it was very... Uh, he comes off very distant, which makes sense, because he's probably not really all there anymore. And, you know, he's been wielding the Sword of Cain for decades at this point. Um, yep. He's had Assurin in him for way longer. And he's been through a lot. And he's probably seen some horrible shit fighting demons. Yeah, yeah he's broken. Um, so, he's quite a broken man. Yeah, Malekith has a, got, had a very cold relationship with his dad. Marathi loves Malekith. Genuinely. Like, I don't Golden think there's boy. any... Um, and she spoils him a lot, too. <laughs> Especially back then. But um, Malekith looked up to his father. I I think it's worth just um, interrupting and saying that I think that a lot of that is also because of the way that Anarian was acting. Yes. Um, uh, she, in many respects, was compensating for this father figure that was distant and difficult and cold and not just all of that, but also enormously impressive. He's, he has he saved their species, effectively, um, and is in the process of being not just the first Phoenix King, but the first elf of awesomeness that ever awesomed. He's just extraordinary, and no one ever could live up to that, particularly when he's also simultaneously at home a bit of an abusive father, somebody mm. that the court is terrified of, someone that Malekith will be looking up to and seeing the court and how terrified they are of his father and going, 
maybe this is the way that I should be. You can almost mm. see where the a lot of what he will become starts right at the very, very beginning. And his mother's sitting at the side, desperately looking at her son and the effect that that man is having on him, loving that man, but also terrified of what this could mean for her son. Yeah, I could see that being a tough place to be. Yeah, and and it's also... So, that is to say, uh, Anarian goes off and he dies. Now, granted, yeah. Anarian dies in one of the most epic things ever. Um, there's a lot of different versions on who he fights, but the important thing is he fights literally the biggest, baddest, greater demons you can think of. Um, yeah, I think one thing that's worth adding here, just as a small aside, um, right at the very beginning, he, um, he, he actually kills a chap called Morkar, um, who was the big bad guy in HeroQuest. Um, and was later cast as an ever chosen that Sigmar kills um, because mm. they decided they decided that there couldn't have been humans that were responsible for all of the attacks. And they changed it in the lore and just suddenly went, it was all demons. It was all demons that came through. <laughs> where originally, originally it wasn't. Originally, it was the hordes of chaos as we know today. Um, so there was chaos warriors. There was humans all over the place. There was the equivalent of Cornate Tech coming down with like big scorpion machines doing their crazy mm. stuff that changed in time and disappeared completely so they couldn't have the first ever chosen morcar there because there was no humans it was all demons uh and they completely changed the background having said that though they still kept almost all of the detail except that one last bit um meaning that the stories sometimes when you look at them and try to pick them apart and say for example good old master so tech over here does you start mm. going oh wait a minute there's a couple of holes here that don't make a lot of sense yeah and that's because they've often deleted some parts with a little bit of tipex and go yep that didn't happen neither did that and neither did that but they didn't refill it with something else yeah that's yeah that's a great thing to bring up too because the it is not unusual for people to run into that and go wait there's a more car here and it's mm -hmm. like but more car doesn't show up for like another four thousand five hundred years, years. Yeah. On. <laughs> but uh so yeah um, and also one of my favorite artwork pieces ever is an Aryan fighting, uh, facing down Nakari, uh, which is phenomenal and also inspired the version of Nakari we got in Total War Warhammer 3, which I'm super happy about. Um, but anyway, enough of that. So an Aryan dies and he dies literally in the most heroic way he possibly could have. Yep. Um, and he sacrifices himself to save the world along with Caldor and all them. But an Aryan gets a pretty hefty lion's share of the credit because uh, it was a lot more obvious what he was doing. Um, you know, Kalidor kind of, as far as everyone saw, Kalidor kind of vanished onto the Isle of the Dead, and then nobody ever saw him again. Uh, you know, not a lot of people got to dramatically watch him cast the spell, whereas Anarian was literally the fireworks show, facing off against greater demons, him and his dragon, and Anarian dies, but before he dies, he puts the Widowmaker back in the Altar of Cain, and he vanished. The other thing that's kind of important about Anarian is he didn't really get a proper funeral because nobody found him. Uh, he literally oh, just vanished, mm -hmm. um, which is terrifying. Um, and uh, I don't even think they found his dragon either. Like, I think they and both Dragonir died as well. Old yeah, and Dragonir, Dragonir did like die, but it's like, I don't yeah. think they found their corpses. I think they were both just like, poof. Um, which you know, probably some cane shenanigans there, who knows? But uh, so the two of them die, and so the elves are kind of left shocked and reeling because. Uh, once again, Kalidor sort of sprung it on everybody. It was it was literally the fight of the apocalypse with no warning. Um, when they had been fighting that war for a long time, because as much as the Great Incursion, Chaos showing up was kind of an apocalyptic event, it also lasted a really long time, <laughs> like thousands and thousands of years. 
um, which is a little bonkers. Because when you read about it, it feels like, oh, this must have taken place over like a couple of years. And it's like, no, it takes place over millennia. Um, but so for the elves, the war is suddenly over. Demons are yep. gone. The, the world is much less magical. Magic yep. is like sucked out of the world. Yep. Um, and things are weird. They're quiet. And the elves start to rebuild. And uh, it's also worth um, making a small note here for those of you mm -hmm. who are going, what was that like? Um, our elves are a deeply magical species. Imagine what it's like. Um, one of the reasons why Narian was so against it is because they drew their power from the magic that was inherently in the world. And to shut it all off suddenly means that all these extremely powerful wizards, mages, elves in general have now become diminished. They're now so much less than they were before. It's not just the dragons that get sleepy and go and hide underneath the mountains. Um, the elves themselves are no longer what they once were. But uniquely here, the elves also have the vortex right beside them. So they're still bathing in that great swirl of magic. So much more than, uh, than the other species around the world are. But it is worth noting that for the elves, it was a massive change. They're just not what they used to be. And they end up, in mm. many respects, trying to find ways to return to what they once were. Yeah, and uh, and the other side of it is that Ultuan as well gets bat like Ultuan itself is never the same. Ultuan gets yeah. battered by the creation of the vortex, Dattered. like talking yeah, totally. tsunamis and earthquakes and mm -hmm. all sorts of horrible shit. And Ultuan it takes like a they literally take a year just to kind of settle, um, because it was so bad. But mm. they they get through it, and after a year you have we have the first the first council uh the council of the phoenix where all of the princes get together from all the different kingdoms and they decide that there needs to be another phoenix king which is interesting because there was no precedent for that um yeah anarian became the phoenix king due to kind of a desperate act and the only reason he gets called phoenix king is because he takes on the power of assurance but he marries the ever queen um yeah it wasn't and this is I, I just have to say this is one thing that i particularly hate just oh. in general background lore, because it means that there can never actually be an elected queen. The princes always um, elect a man to rule over them, while the other queen sits over there doing the other queen bits. And there's no election there. There's 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 nothing other than yeah, right, there. Yeah. Um. And and <laughs> the, it means that if you are a woman in the uh, high elf lands, you have nowhere to go once you reach a certain level. None. Where all the men have always got the chance of becoming king. Um. And there's just. It's just a thing that always sticks in my craw and goes, yeah, you can tell what sort of person wrote that one. They weren't thinking that one through completely. Yeah. The unfairness. Yeah, you, you cap out at Princess. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. like, and, oh, man, there's a whole thing. I'm, I'm well, going to stop. I'm, I'm going to stop myself from doing that. Story. No, no, you're, you're good. Malekith. <laughs> Malekith. Okay. Uh, so they have the first council, um, and they gather together um, the princes, um, the, the leading prince from each of yeah, the they, kingdoms who all are kingdoms. like trying to convince each other that they should be Phoenix King because the high elves love politics, like, or well, just the elves. Uh, the elves love politics because they're not high elves yet. Mm -hmm. um, and what's very present on everyone's mind is that Malekith is in the room and Marathi comes with him. Um, so it was also like their various thing. And they meet in the Shrine of Cain, or <laughs> Shrine of Assurin. <laughs> the right one. Yeah, they meet in the Shrine of Assurin uh, on his little island, which is actually not terribly far from the Isle of the Dead. And they have some debates and stuff. And Malekith, um, I actually do agree now, now that I think about it for a second, with you saying that he's probably in his 30s, because it's 30s, only a 40s. year after Anarian dies, and he actually gives like a really important speech. Yeah, he does. Where, As I recall, elves generally don't reach full maturity until they're deep into their 30s, almost their 50s, um, until they're 
full maturity. Um, and he does give quite the speech. Mm. So Malekith, and a lot of this is political savvy, but I think a lot of it is also genuine because um, he does back up his actions where Malekith kind of comes out and he says like, hey, we all know I'm an Aryan son. Um, some of you thinks that the title should be hereditary, but I want you all to know that I think we should elect whoever is the most qualified and I will follow them without problem because there yep. was a big fear among the high elves or uh, the elves that if they pick someone else, Malekith could turn around and say, nope, just like the Everqueen, this is a hereditary title, and he could start a civil war instantly. Yeah. Um, and a lot worth, of the elves would have backed him. Yeah, it's worth noting, though, that Marathi most certainly didn't. Yeah, uh, so they <laughs> don't elect Malekith uh, because some of them feel that Malekith is too much like his dad. Um, yeah. they, they're worried that he's going to be too much of a warmongerer. He's going to be too interested in fighting chaos. And it's not Malekith, another thing we should probably talk about is that Malekith hates chaos. Even like many, many mm -hmm. thousands of years later, I actually, despite a lot of people think dark elves, oh, they're a chaos aligned race. But when you're looking at it no. from Malachi's perspective, no. he despises he chaos. Has literally nothing but contempt for them. All they are useful for is the power that they can provide him and nothing more. Um, in many respects, much later, and perhaps largely because of the influence of his mother, he comes to the opinion that chaos is there to be used um, and destroyed is most certainly not something to be allied with. Um, they yeah. are. A, he ends up becoming a slave monger after all, and as far as he's concerned, they're slaves to darkness, and he is the darkness. Yeah, uh, uh, but in this younger age, like I don't like, he's almost more purely of the eradicate chaos line, mm. and it's it's like Definitely. you know they, they killed his dad. Uh, he took that very personally. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it. I think it's also worth noting something that's not said in the books, but most certainly, and I think should have been, but the the writers just didn't put those two bits together. And that's he's a kid. Mm. He's on the edge of adulthood, on the cusp of it. A young prince, perhaps, but he is most certainly not capable of leading the Ten Kingdoms at this point. He yep. is not a Phoenix King yet. He is potentially a Phoenix King to be. But one of the big differences between elves and, say, for example, humans is if he doesn't become Phoenix King, he might not become Phoenix King again ever because he might die. I mean, it's possible if he dies in a battlefield somewhere. But realistically, for centuries and centuries and centuries. And that, I think, is what Marathi was railing against. The fact that what she saw as his rightful place was being taken by a bunch of mealy-mouthed, mewling political weasels who were taking her son, Anarian's son's, not just power, but birthright from him. Um, and it infuriated mm. her in a, th a fury that never really dies down, I think. Yeah, and to, to be fair, Marathi kind of has a point in that, like, the elves had always done things hereditary. Um all of their titles are hereditary. The Everqueen is hereditary and had always been as far as it they could track back. This was the first time that there was an important position that was elected. Like, yeah. it's a pretty dramatic shift in elven culture. And Marathi is pissed. Like, there's, like, if Malekith has to calm her down. Like, she literally starts mm -hmm. raving at the princes and her son has to be like, Mom, chill. <laughs> you yeah. need to calm the hell down. Um... And so they end up passing over Malekith for Belshinar. Uh, Belshinar, who is a prince from Tiranach, ends up being elected because he's he's a little more scholarly, a little more prince. He's a little more... Uh, they want a peacetime king, and yeah, he radiates that peacetime king energy. Uh, this then... So Malekith... 
I don't, and Malakis, it's important to note, Malakis is the very first person who takes the knee. Like, yeah. as soon as the election goes through, it's a very important part of Malakis' story that he is legit the first person that acknowledges Belshinar as the Phoenix King because he wanted to give an, like, he wanted to make sure everyone knew, I'm cool with this, we're doing this, let's go. And um, I think that this is worth pointing out for his character in general. Um, it is very easy to look at Malekith, particularly when you look at the character he becomes and particularly moves on to in Age of Sigmar. Very easy mm. to go, well, he's clearly the bad guy. Um, but take a look at his actions, take a look at the things he did um, and see how he became that character. To begin with, he most certainly isn't. He is the son of an Aryan and leadership qualities are shining from him from the very outset. He might have a mother, um, who is perhaps very much a Malekith cheerleader, um, probably in Blood Bowl-esque fashion, and perhaps goes a little bit too hard about it, but she is under control in that he takes the step forward and he decides what the next step will be and very clearly ensures that civil war does not happen because this is the first real potential of a break with the elves and also the first potential for the curse of Venarian, the curse of Cain, as has been said, but that, that curse from drawing that sword, um, a sword that may have cursed Cain himself as a god um, for even wielding it back in the ancient times. Mm -hmm. um, this this sword is proper broken. It's wiped out his line, but at the moment, it's not manifesting in the slightest. The dude is sound. Yeah, and it's, you know, and, and once again, he's young at this point. Malekith, yeah. even, I think for the elves, Malekith would have been fully within his rights to be bitter or anything that but there's really no indication that he was like he yep. takes it in stride and he handles yep. it really maturely um and that le and this leads to the age of exploration uh belchinar's like hey let's figure out what the hell's going on in the world we're rebuilding Ulthuan, but you know we could always use more resources and mm -hmm. the elves have some pretty serious wanderlust they really like to go explore so they do and Malekith i'll add a small extra bit on that about malekith because obviously he's a yep. part of that um, and yes. it also, again, shows a deep level of maturity because he realized that he would become potentially, given just how political the elves can be, he would be a figure around which every single last thing that their current Phoenix thing did wrong could gather. He would be a political hot point. He would constantly be there as a reminder of the previous rule and just how effective Anarian had been at wiping out everything. He was their hero and his son is there looking brilliant all the time. Mm. And Malekith goes, you know, I can't allow that to occur. And he joins this age of exploration, which again has a, a, a deep well of not just maturity, but political savvy as well. And that's not with his mum telling him to do it again, at least not with any books that we've got so far. Um, yeah, and I well, think that really does show a big if, difference that uh, he has there. Yeah, I would say if anything, Marathi was probably upset that he left. Oh, yeah, uh, probably. Like, A, Marathi doesn't want him leaving the nest egg. And B, he could, as far as she's concerned, he's sacrificing political yeah. ground by leaving. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree completely. Like um, he, I, I, she's probably upset. <laughs> yeah, and, and to Malika's thing, I think he really wanted to, you know, he's of that age. He wanted to leave. He wanted to explore. He wanted to escape a lot of probably the shadow of his father in many ways and go make his own legacy, which yeah. speaks very well to him. Yeah, so, it does. And I think it also speaks to um, when we look at the overall background and we're trying to figure out how it happened, not just the individual words that are done. There had to have been a conversation between her and him where he had to sit down with her and say, no. I am doing this. This is the damage that will happen if I stay here. I understand you want me to stay here because you want to inflict that damage. Because you yeah. want me to be Phoenix King. Mm. 
And you know, I don't think that that's appropriate at all. It's time for me to go, Mom. And, and Mom is all... Yeah, I struggle to remember if this is the point, but I know either right before the Age of Exploration when he leaves or he leaves her while and he then he meets her later, Malekith has a fight with Marathi where they like they shoot spells at each other and Marathi whoops his ass. Well, no, no uh, surprise. Yeah, Marathi's like, yeah, he gets because Malekith is a very like even from a young age, very, very skilled fighter. Marathi mm -hmm. teaches him a lot about sorcery, but Marathi has mm -hmm. always been a character who's very careful to keep the very best stuff for herself. Um, yeah. She's very clever. And, uh, she and, and I think we'll continue to outclass him until mm -hmm. eventually he finds that circlet. Yes, which we're going to get to in just a sex. But uh, Malekith, yeah. like, he fights with his mother, and he loses. Yeah. And I think that, if I recall correctly, that also plays into him leaving, um, is that he's very much trying to get away from his mother's control and wanting to leave a lot of what being the son of Anarian is behind. Yeah, so it's he, a complicated relationship, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. like, he does love his mother, though. Like, that, oh, at uh, least no at doubt. this point. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think it would be fair to say at no point does he ever not, even when she reaches the very worst of it, because mm. she will always be the person that she was back then, as well as the person that she becomes. Um, so there's some part of him that will never leave that, no matter how black and withered his soul may become, if indeed you believe that it ever does, um, given that some people will claim that he was always playing the long game, which is definitely an argument. Yeah. So now we come to one of the first really interesting points uh, as far as like things that influence Malekith that maybe are a little more weird, which is Malekith yeah. goes out to explore the world. And a lot of that is mm -hmm. fighting against what's left of chaos. So yeah, sure, the demons are gone, but the demons left a lot behind. Uh, Beastmen everywhere famir everywhere uh like the famir and the beastmen are the two dominant species in the old in the, most of the what we now know as the old world uh the dwarfs were almost pushed back exclusively to karasakarak and a few other isolated holds and they take a while before they resurface and start exploring and expanding again so like there's a lot of bad guys every well bad guys from an elf perspective all over the place yeah, it's an interesting one because um, this is a period where we definitely have proto-humans all over the place. We definitely have halflings. We definitely have ogres. We have all of the species that we will come to know, uh, but they are so poorly detailed that we're never quite sure where they are. We do get lots of remnants of, say, sky giants up in the mountains or this, that, and the other all over the place, or, yeah. as we'll go on to with our circlet, other potential um, societies. But they are very poorly detailed here. So if you're looking to expand into your own version of what happened, literally everything is out there. And, and we have entire dragons doing crazy dragon shit. We have lots of Warhammer species <laughs> yeah. that we know are doing crazy stuff. And then who knows what's happening down the Southlands, for example, um, or Hinterlands of Koresh. There's definitely stuff out there that's mm. beyond that. But the actual stories themselves barely touch them. They generally just go, yeah, there's chaos stuff to kill. Let's stop. Yeah, yeah. Warhammer Fantasy, especially historically, is very much like Texas, where it looks big and you're like, wow, a lot of people live there. And then you go there and you realize like 85% of it is empty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh Malekith starts uh he is and he's fighting a lot. Like they're fighting mm -hmm. against the forces of chaos, and they they recognize chaos when they see it. Elves have a weirdly good sense of telling when something is chaos affiliated, meaning like it's been changed by chaos. And the yeah. elves there was, was there green skins as well. Seem to recall, yes. Um, so the, facing the green, against green skins, yeah, the green skins too. start to resurge because when yeah, the demons yeah. vanish, there's a lot suddenly empty. Because we think mm -hmm. like Bellacor, uh, the first demon prince, had an ah, empire, Bellacor. 
Like he had a full empire where he was worshipped as a god and he was fighting with a bunch of other demon princes who had also established their own empires in the old world. Like it was a land of chaos, ruled by chaos, controlled by chaos. And all of a sudden, poof, <laughs> they're all gone. Everybody's gone. So like you have all these power vacuums because the demons have vanished and everything that requires that much magic has vanished or stopped functioning. And so flooding into this, we get the greenskins just boiling up. We get beastmen uh, who now are able, they are no longer the playthings of the demons. They're now in charge and they get to, they start hunting. Like we know, uh, we have some notes about how like a lot of the early humans can vaguely remember a time when they were hunted like beasts by the beastmen because the beastmen mm -hmm. were the dominant species. And we know the Famir who were at one point, the favored children of chaos and in some of the more recent lore considered to be some of the earliest chaos worshipers, they're still a pretty dominant force in like a lot of the fens and the cold Myers and stuff. And then the elves show up out of, for, as far as these guys are concerned out of fucking nowhere, these ships, pull up, yeah, these ships pull up along the shore and all of a sudden all these pointy eared assholes come off and start kicking everybody's ass. Here uh, comes the shining host. Yeah. And so, uh, Malekith, uh, is considered like one of the best generals of his age. Like he, he comes out and choose come. Yeah. And he starts warming his way North. He starts fighting, 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 going North. And he's just exploring. Like he's just checking out what's mm. out there, fighting monsters, killing epic creatures. Like he's doing his whole thing. He's fighting like naval battles against like a uh, weird sea monsters. And he's fighting mm. beastmen herds and all sorts of stuff, making a name for himself. And he's loving it. Like he's loving the freedom. He's having a great time. And then he shows up in a weird place. We don't know exactly where, but it's said in the distant north, he comes across a ruin. We don't know who the ruins belong to. Um, it is a mysterious race that was civilized enough to have a lot of really power. Like they had infrastructure and they built this really weird city um, that has like, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the world, apparently. And Malekith explores it and he finds an artifact that we now know as the circlet of iron. And he takes it and he realizes that it's very, very powerful and he puts it on his head and he realizes that it gives him absurd control. Ping, ping, ping. <laughs> yeah. Like he starts, he get, his magical power spikes. Like it gives yep. him amazing control over the winds of magic. And Malekith, a part of him knows that the artifact is probably not necessarily the most mundane or uh, the most benign. It's not benign. Like I, I think a part of him knows there's something chaosy about it because it's it's magic. Like they're they're very intertwined. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that uh, here we can start pinging upon the uh, pinging upon the arrogance of not just Malekith but the elves in general. Um, mm. For all this artifact may or may not carry some sort of curse, it is quite frankly piddly in comparison to the curse of Anarian. The curse yeah. that was laid <laughs> upon that big blade. It's nothing. And for someone like Malekith, who is now in the flush of what is effectively his late teenage, um, early 20s, he is full of himself. Victory after victory after victory, touring around the world like some sort of goddamn kick-ass king. Um, and he arrives here and he finds something and, that you know, it's got power. You know, this is a gift in the mm. old... Lord of the Rings type fashion. This is something that has granting him access to perhaps the power that Calador Dragon Teamer had before the Vortex was created. We're talking proper magic before it was dragged from the world and suddenly he's found something that gives him access to this. 
And this also brings him up arguably to a par with his father. And if you're looking at some of this psychologies that lie behind it, this is something that perhaps allows him to finally become the Phoenix King that he had mother tells him that he is, that he feels that he's supposed to be, but perhaps some part of him is considering, am I that Phoenix King? And now he's got access to power that allows him to become that. And that can immediately fill him with confidence and arrogance and a desire, not necessarily to take all the precautions he may originally have taken, but I think actually he probably did because he's also super clever. Yes. Um, super clever. And maybe at the back of it, also a little bit of the, maybe my mum can't beat me in the old magic front anymore. Yeah, and th there's, a, there's a note about the Circle of Iron in that, uh, the, the important thing to know about Malekith is that it's not like he didn't have magic. Malekith was a sorcerer <laughs> before this. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. His, totally. his mom had taught him, he had likely started to dabble little bits in dark magic, though not nearly as much as Marathi did, because she kept a lot of that secret from him for a while. Um, but he, like, he was a decent wizard. He wasn't anything like, you know, he wasn't an archmage, but when he put on the circlet of iron, he legit becomes one of the most powerful wizards among the elves very rapidly, which also kind of has a poison to it of that. He didn't necessarily do the proper, he didn't walk the proper paths to attain that power. Um, he just sort of kind of suddenly became insanely gifted with something that he maybe didn't appreciate the value as much as he should have. <laughs> um, and, uh, but in any event, he takes a circle of iron and like Andy said, it, it's not like it corrupts him immediately. He actually yeah. is very careful with it. Um, but his arrogance probably doesn't appreciate what the, what it will affect uh, have on him on the long term. You know, yeah, I think, um, one way to view it is take a look at, say, for example, Ariel and her use of dark magic. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's very easy to say, oh, the Wood Elves, they've got themselves the dark and the light all slapped up together and they're fine. But if you take a look at how Ariel's often depicted, that use of dark magic over a very long period of time had significantly impacted many of her, let's say, decisions. And the corruption was exceedingly slow, and it was all effectively, them being elves, self-made. They're making decisions because of the power, the raw power that they have access to, and power by its very nature corrupts. So it's not just that mm. the thing itself is corrupted. The thing itself, in some respects, is a metaphor for corruption because it is power. And by its very nature, it's going to cause them to corrupt because of the unearned power that it grants. Yeah. And, uh, but for like, uh, I saw somebody already asking is, did the circle make him evil? No, like not at all. In the sense that the next thing that happens to Malekith is arguably one of the most wonderful things that he does in his life, which is that he meets the dwarves. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, so Malekith, uh, the elves. So as if you've ever looked at maps of like a lot of the, uh, the old world, you'll notice that most of the old world's biggest, baddest cities are ports. Um, and that's a lot of the time because they are built on top of elven ruins <laughs> because the elves established a whole bunch of ports because they were coming in from the coast and then very, very slowly moving inland. Um, because they, you know, a lot of times they didn't have necessarily the numbers, but the colonies start getting established and Malekith is already considered like a great hero by this point. He has defeated some insanely powerful forces of chaos, mm -hmm. you know, and while the demons had been mostly pushed out of the world, that doesn't mean demons didn't pop up occasionally. There were yeah. still beastmen war herds unleashing terrifying great rituals that would summon a greater demon and Malekith fought some of them and beat them. Um, and so he's like 
practically worshipped as a great hero. And at this point, he meets the dwarves. Um, they have first contact. There's actually a really hilarious note in the Malekith series about the first meeting between dwarves and elves because they can't talk to each other. They don't speak the same language. And it's uh, I highly recommend the Sundering series. It's awesome. But that scene in particular is hysterical because the scene bounces between their perspectives and shows what they think of each other the first time. And it's hilarious of like they they don't think very flattering things about each other at first. Um, but the dwarves and the elves meet and Malekith is basically selected because he is by far the most um, powerful and like worshipped of the elves at this point. Um, the colonies, he's basically the king of the colonies. He's the, he's the de facto king of the, of the new elven colonies, which Interesting enough, despite the fact Malekith does not intend it to be this way because he has no control over how it's being seen back in Old One, is kind of used against the Phoenix King as a bit of a barb of that Belshinar is just sitting at home, um, not really doing anything. Meanwhile, Malekith's out earning all this glory and he's winning all these great victories and like all these all this wealth and resources are coming from the old world back to Old One. And a lot of the elves are starting to go, maybe we maybe we messed up maybe Malekith should have been king because look at what he's doing. And Belchinar is just sitting here sitting on his throne, politicking in the Phoenix court all day, despite the fact that's what like elves love doing, <laughs> but it starts being weaponized against Belchinar and Belchinar is keenly aware of it. Um, mm -hmm. But Malekith becomes ambassador to the dwarves and he meets high King Snorri Whitebeard and against kind of a lot of fantasy tropes uh, though. I, I guess it also kind of leans into fantasy tropes of Malekith and Snorri Whitebeard become literally best friends. Like when I say best friends, I'm talking about like Sam and Frodo Gimli Legolas levels of best friends. Um, yeah, they're best mates. Yeah. We're like some people, some people who aren't as comfortable with, the, with themselves would look at it and go, are they like friends or are they friends? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I'd I also like to add the back home that throughout this period as well, whilst Malekith is off being, you know, awesome, um, back home uh, cults are rising um, all over the place in Ulthuin. Um, the pleasure cults are making their first um, real steps into Ulthuin, and that's one of the things that weakens the Phoenix King's rule. Now, it's easy to say that those were um, all organised by Marathi from day one to undermine the Phoenix King um, and try and install... Uh, Malekith and afterwards, um, but it would be equally easy to say that um, that's just one part of a far greater whole, that it's a very big, complicated set of affairs um, that involve not just Slanesh, which is um, something that, because this bit's lifted from the very first write-ups about this era, um, but we now know that there's a ton of elven gods that pleasure cults don't just reflect in terms of Slanesh and Slanesh alone. They've got a variety of gods that reflect in Elven Good old society. authority. And, yeah, well, authority in particular. You can't mm. go wrong with authority. Um, and those gods, in some respects, are being, um, at this point, you can see almost outlawed in preference to gods that match the current Phoenix King's preferences. Um, and the court of Nagaride, which is, in generally speaking, a far, let's say, more earthly-bound, darker court than, say, for example, the court that might be running elsewhere. Um, we're already mm. beginning to get the divisions in elven uh, society long before we actually break. It's already beginning to occur. And the pleasure cults in particular, where it all goes wrong, are rising. And Malekith's going to be coming back to talk about those soon. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's it's very much worth. Um, once again, we don't have enough time to go into it. Yeah. We'll have to do a, do totally. a gods episode, but um, oh, gods, 
Yeah, there is there's a lot of shenanigans happening back in Old One because mm-hmm. the Old Wani elves are bored. Um, yeah. they they're safe and they don't know what to do with themselves. And thanks to what's going on in the colonies, they are inundated with wealth and everything they could ever want. And they start to turn to maybe satisfying some darker interests to find ways to amuse themselves. And we um, all know love the elves. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of really fascinating stuff there, but it's not directly related to Malekith right now, so we're gonna we're yeah, gonna skip it for the totally. moment. So um the dwarves and the elves become very, very close, and a lot of that is because they have mutual enemies in the beastmen, mm-hmm. the Famir. Um, they're one of the most big dramatic fights um is actually featured in the War of Vengeance trilogy or omnibus. <laughs> which shows the what's called like kind of the final great battle um, where the El- Malekith and story Whitebeard are fighting side by side and they're going up against this terrifying horde of beastmen that have summoned a bunch of demons. And we're talking like story Whitebeard is dueling with a great unclean one and Malekith is dueling a Lord of change and things are getting crazy. Um, my, I, I still have this hilarious. There's this, quote that's it's sad but funny at the same time where this great unclean one literally like vomits all of this insane horrible disease power on snorri whitebeard and he's on the throne of power so it kills the throne bearers but snorri's like oh that was nothing meanwhile his throne bearers are like dying horribly below him and he's like get me close to that great unclean one so i can hit it with my axe i love snorri um and but malekith and him are absurdly close friends they save each other's lives multiple times um and they are to say that malekith is a dwarf friend knowing how if you have any idea of how significant that phrase is being a dwarf friend that is not an idle thing it's not just being a friend with the dwarf that's that's like if if another dwarf finds out you are a dwarf friend that comes with some serious legal and societal things yeah it kind of goes beyond legal doesn't it this is um something that's intrinsic to their character it's right down to the very base of what it is to be a dwarf the honor that comes along with that and the fact that somebody has shown themselves to be devonger a dwarf friend um and it is deep man sigmar will be getting the benefit of that for 2500 years yeah that's how deep it is his empire still benefits from that to this day yeah, and the thing about Malekith is, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is correct, but I believe Malekith is the first ever dwarf friend. Um, it's, the one I'm, it's the first one I'm aware of, yes. Yeah, because, I mean, the dwarves didn't really talk to anybody until they met the elves, and Malekith, yeah, yeah so I think, he, I believe he is, um, and he's declared such by High King Snorri Whitebeard, who, yep. to reiterate, High King Snorri Whitebeard is not just any High King. He is literally the son of Grugni. He is basically an ancestor god um like he's as close which it, it's a little weird at what point grogni's kids stopped being considered an ancestor god um because is not actively considered one but his siblings are <laughs> so i'm not sure what the rules were there but the, the whole thing around that is a little bit whim of the writer at hand as they realize or don't know a particular bit of lore so some of them say yes some of them say no so it was, it's really loose and it's kind of difficult to pin down yeah, I, I would say that it's fair to call him an ancestor god, but I think... Uh, 100%. Yeah, it the, the thing that's unique about Snorri is that after the war against the demons, the ancestor gods vanished. Um, They all pieced out to what's known as the Glittering Realm, supposedly. So they all were like, hey, we'll come back when you need us most, but we're going to we're gonna pe- peace out because there's less magic in the world and we got to go. 
Um, but Snorri stayed behind and he became the first high king. Um, but like the throne of power was made for him as a gift by his dad, <laughs> which is nuts. Um, but so Snorri and Malekith are very good friends and trade opens up between the dwarves and the elves. The dwarves yep. are expanding into the old world. They're expanding into all the mountains. The dwarves are expanding into the hills um, that we have the, the Skarinari at this point. You know, we have the hill dwarves who aren't around anymore. Um, which we'll get into why, but like, mm -hmm. you know, so like there are doors everywhere, there are elves everywhere and life is great. Everything's yeah. awesome. To, to look at the old world as we all know it today. Um, the old world is basically a, almost a continent split between dwarves and elves with whatever it is that's left to fight split amongst them. This is long before a significant population of humans is um, in the area. Although you will find that several of them move in at various points with migrations, particularly later. There is definitely mm -hmm. some kicking around here at this point, depending upon which Warhammer writer you listen to. Um, but the general consensus is... Up in the mountains, it's the dwarves. Down in the forest, it's the elves. And there's trade routes, like a giant network spread across the lot. And the elves are almost at the peak of their empire. No it's, other way the it. it's yeah. a proper empire where the dwarves are. The dwarves are almost arguably a connected kingdom down the spine. Yeah, that's that's world. true. Yeah, and the, the, um, elves, the elves are a global. They control yeah, the oceans flat out. Totally. Um, there's also one thing that's just loosely worth dropping it's only like a couple of sentences and that's that we never really get an idea of why the high the kings the princes of the elves choose a high prince a high king for them at their effective uh phoenix king but if there was just the slightest contact with the dwarves then you've got potentially one because it was all the individual holds and one above them all um so there is a model out there already mm -hmm. and the chances that there was no communication to them with them at all, I think is not just slim to none, it's none. That yeah. would have been known at some point in the past. Well, like we know so, we know Kalidor fought with Grimnir, so like he took yeah. a lot of information back with him, probably. <laughs> and, and there's your model. So if you're looking for a model where the elves would likely have been able to pick it up from, you've got one with the dwarves. It's already there. So you can see the politics that were imported, but that doesn't mean that their politics have anything to do with the elves. But that's an aside. Yeah. So, um, so at this point, this is when, um, Malekith, some interesting kind of things happen that, and there's a little bit of fuzziness here. So we know that it's, and the reason this is so fuzzy is because it was a very late addition to the lore. It only pops up in eighth edition, which is that Malekith gets married. Um, Malekith <laughs> actually, yeah, yeah it, it, it literally, <laughs> we don't know when he got married. They don't specify that. Um, it seems implied that he gets married while he lives in the colonies, which would make sense. Yeah. Um, but he gets married to a, uh, an elf seer called Alisara, who is a very, very, very powerful wizard. Um, she is extremely gifted in prophecy, like one of the best, um, uh, prophecy elves of her time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, from all accounts, the two of them had a really good marriage. Um, yep, yep. Malekith was on campaign a lot, but it seemed that when he was home, they genuinely were very affectionate towards one another. And she was kind of seen as royalty because he, like, they were royalty. They were... Yeah. As I um, recall, she's the sister of Ariel. Yes, yeah, she um, is Ariel's sister. And and that, I think, grounds in just how much royalty they are. It also grounds where the relationship likely began. Um, so you've mm. got yourself um, someone who is going to be living out in the colonies, Ariel, her sister, et al, over in Athaloran. And you've got him, who is ultimately um, an Althuan elf. Yeah, I would not be surprised. We don't know much about Ariel and Alisara's family, but I would highly suspect that Alisara and Ariel's dad probably very much wanted Alisara to marry Malekith so a colonial family could have that tie back to, oh my God, the son of an Arian and an Othwani and yada yada. 
I also think it's very likely they're directly related to the royal line of Avalorn because Avalorn and mm-hmm. Athalorin, in terms of how they appear, are very, very similar. Um, at, particularly to begin with, there's tree men over in um, Avalorn. Um, Avalorn itself is a forested realm. They move over to a forested realm, and that's where they ground yeah, themselves. I mean, um, it makes sense. Yeah, Durkin yeah. hung out in Avalorn forever. Like he was yeah, there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the 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 forest spirits of Athalorn. It said that Avalorn was literally their second. For some yeah. of them, they loved it more than Athalorn, which is yeah. wild. So the chances of her being, for example, or both of them being of that line is very high. If not necessarily directly related, then perhaps the second generation from it, and or alternatively, maybe a generation back, in that they are related to a line before the current Everqueen. Or perhaps even one before that, hmm. but definitely from that sort of area. What we can be certain is, though, Malekith is the very height of royalty, and he is almost certain to be marrying somewhat similar, given the way that the nature of, yeah. of elven society at that point. Yeah. So uh, what happens from this point is that Malekith keeps going out on campaign, and um, Malekith gets called home. Um, rather unexpectedly like Malekith is living life and he's basically his own king and there is actually a lot of very important thing about the, the colonies they acknowledge Ulthuan but they don't really give a shit what Ulthuan's doing and they're kind of resentful of the Phoenix King um, because they're out there fighting battles they're out there taking a lot of the risk and they kind of like ruling themselves. And every once in a while, an edict will come in from Belshinar saying, you need to do X or you need to do Y or need to send back resources. Or Belshinar, Belshinar actually does make an appearance in the colonies. He comes over to visit the dwarves officially. Um, uh, and he goes to Kadasakadak and he meets with Hiking Stormy Whitebeard. He appoints Malekith as the high ambassador. And Malekith is told that uh, by Belshinar, you need to come home. Like we need you. There's stuff going on. Things are getting kind of ugly. We need we need Those your cults. Help. Yeah, yeah, totally. Those cults are rising. Um, you've also got to remember um, that the elves are hyper political. So when the colonies are sitting out there going, uh, we don't like this, we don't like that. Be aware, the same as in Elfwood, all of the individual kingdoms are doing exactly the same thing. Mm. Being the Phoenix King is a very heavy crown because the people that you are leading are exceedingly difficult and exceedingly individual. And they're also exceedingly capable. So they will often look at, let's say, their king and perceive flaws everywhere. Because it's not how they do it, God damn it. Um, so so <laughs> yeah. those colonies don't necessarily see them as particularly different to Ulthuin as a whole. And um, the whole of the Elven Empire, which by this point now spans the world, don't just think of it as the old world. They are literally everywhere. On yeah. islands poking up all over the place. All those they towers are... you see on like the global Indeed. map, this is this is when they build those. Yeah, um, and they're sailing literally everywhere. Um, and they are pretty much arguably the dominant power in the world at this point by a significant measure. Mm. There is nobody else who has not just the network of uh, authority and control across the globe, but nobody else who has also that wide spanning power to go wherever they want to do whatever they need to do. They are big stuff. And yes, Malekith is summoned home. Yes. And two very important things happen to Malekith before he leaves. And they're both really bad and sad. The first mm-hmm. is that Hiking Story Whitebeard dies. Um, Hiking Story Whitebeard. Now, he dies of old age. Um, he was super fucking old for a dwarf. Um, he's like multiple thousands of years old when he dies. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does actually grow old and pass from the world. And to 
put it into words i i love the writing on snorri whitebeard's death because it's very emotional but he like he banished kind of banishes everyone from his bedside um and when malekit hears story whitebeard is ill he comes flying in like a bat out of hell um to see his best friend um literally his best friend malekit is not noted to have an elf friend as close as he is to story whitebeard not even close so he comes just hurtling in ignores everybody else to come see his friend and story whitebeard when Malika shows up, Story Whitebeard literally tells everyone else to leave the room, even his wife. <laughs> he tell like he loved his queen, but he's like, I need to talk to my best friend. Um, and Malekith is with him, and this is when Snorri makes Malekith swear an oath. And he tells he tells Malekith to swear to him that he will defend everything the two of them built together. Um, and Malekith, not duplicitous, being hundred percent genuine, swears a very, very deep oath to Snorri Whitebeard. And yep. with that, Snorri Whitebeard's finally able to rest and he dies. Like he literally dies with Malekith holding his hand and like he dies. Uh, Malekith is the very last person that talks to Snorri Whitebeard. So Malekith announces to the dwarves that their high king has passed away. Like that's how crazy that relationship was. Um, and that's the death of Snorri, which is very hard on Malekith. Like you think about how strongly emotional elves are, and this is a friendship that's lasted. Elves, it's like they do die of old age, but it's not very common. Um, yeah, uh, some uh, elves. It's it's one of the big um, issues with uh, Games Workshop writers is none of them yeah. really know. Um, so you tend to find that there's a few different versions of what the state of affairs is. Um, but generally speaking, it's elves live for a freaking long time. But once they reach a certain point, they generally require something to keep them going. Um, mm. The dark elves uh, and uh, let's say Malekith and Marathi very clearly have how they extended their life written in several places during the course of the lore. Worth moving into that potentially a little bit later because yeah. elves aren't immortal. Um, and they have a particular route that they take to ensure that they continue living. Um, and that's a route that is quite different to say, for example, the wood elves, who literally, their oldest ones are pretty much gods. Yeah, and there, I would say it's not a coincidence that the elves that are insanely long-lived almost always tend to be wizards. Um, the yep. non -wizard it's not ones a coincidence. Tend, yeah, they, the non-wizard <laughs> non ones tend to die relative, like they tend to live for like, five six thousand years but then they tend to peter off not even that long and most yeah. of, you'll find that some of them are dying uh there's a few instances of some dying at a thousand um yeah, not like even Kara, that old in the greater scheme yeah Kara dryle is said to die peacefully in his sleep of old age and i think he was only like one or like two or three thousand if that yeah yeah um, totally um like, and that um when we were uh sitting down to write how long do elves last um the general uh behind the scenes was you reach a certain point and then effectively you're rolling dice every year to see if you die of old age. But it's a really small number, like one mm. in 10,000. And every year you're rolling it and you might die of old age and you won't look old. But one day you might just go, oh, that's it. This is the year I'm fading. And they fade out. But being elves, um, as is noted, actually, one of the army lists, um, they might just go down and have a little nap and nap for a century because the winds of magic themselves can sustain elves, particularly if they're on the magical side. So mm. you even when they're dead, you can't be certain the fuckers are dead. Um, because it's yeah, so narrative. He's like, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> yeah, you are. Just, just, just keep going up keep again. Um, but the general uh, behind the scenes, the general consensus was to live past three thousand 
you needed magic of some form. You needed something to extend it further, or you're going to have to get something like Hellebron and the nightmare that she goes through. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, in any event, uh, the second, so that's obviously very tragic and that has a huge impact on Malekith. And totally. actually and that does in a lot of ways, chase him away from the colonies is there's that very there's a lot of heartbreak there, and that, I think, very much informs a lot of his genuine decision to leave. The second thing that happens is right after Malekith leaves, or it's either right before or right after, Alasara vanishes. Um, his his wife abandons him, and Malekith doesn't know why, and it really fucks with him. It really, really fucks with him. Um, now, we know from Alasara's perspective that she sees a vision. Um, she has a she has one of her little holy visions or whatever, and she sees what Malekith is going to become. And out of fear, she flees. Yep. Um, but and she hides away from him, and then we'll come back to her in a little while. So Malekith goes home, and Malekith starts completely genuine. Um, once again, he does not know Marathi is behind the cult of pleasure. Like he has a conversation with his mother when he returns, but they're not seeing eye to eye very well because she's like oh look who finally came home and he's like yeah i love you too mom bye <laughs> you know they're 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 not they're not on the best of terms uh, at the moment but he starts hunting down the pleasure cults of pleasure and yeah, it's, it's worth um iterating just how strong this is because he hmm. comes back a hero um and he then looks at the problems that are besetting Ulthuin, sees it makes speeches across Ulthuin does the thing and says that not even his homelands, Nagarai, will be left aside for what is effectively his inquisition. He intends to wipe them out to a man. And if that means that it goes right up to the top of power, then so fucking be it. And he is quite categorical about just how unacceptable this is because we're not just talking about cults of the darker sides of the dark elf, the army, the elf pantheon. We're talking proper cults of pleasure. We're talking to Slanesh. The chaos god itself, something that I think, as we've already established, not Malekith's favorite people. Yeah, and Malik, it Malik, when he discovers the Slaneshi aspect in particular, Malekith actually gets genuinely pissed. Yeah, um, like he, once again, I honestly do not think there are many characters that hate chaos because, like Malekith, while Marathi uses chaos, she doesn't really seem to feel one way. She doesn't hate them. They're more like they're not even worth hatred. It's Malekith, contempt. Yeah, it's nothing Malekith, more than contempt. They mean nothing to her. They're ants. Yeah, Malekith actively hates a lot of chaos. Like he doesn't. He's not okay with the pleasure cults. Um, the moment Slash gets involved, he will stomp down on that so hard it's not even funny because he views it uh, probably in many ways as an insult to his father. Um, so fair. he ends up. And he does a very good job. And the, one of the things that ends up being sad later is Malekith actually becomes very close with Phoenix King Belshinar. Um, yeah. Like he becomes his closest confidant and advisor. And the two of them have a very genuine friendship. And Malekith doesn't know this, but Belshinar begins to genuinely see Malekith as he should be the next Phoenix King. Like yep. he, he needs to be leading our people. He's ready. And Belshazzar kind of starts making preparations, but Malekith doesn't know this. Um, I'd go further in to say that um, I think it wouldn't just be him. There would be a significant portion of the population by this yes. point. Okay, that has seen not just this great hero who went out and found himself, but has come back and is continuing to show what the best of elven kind can be. 
And that's just not, it, it's worth making sure that that's super clear because as the lore will expand and change later on, there's a lot of um, doubt and uh, let's say attacks made as to whether Malekith should be Phoenix King. But at this point, I don't think there would be any doubt in anyone's mind that he would be an obvious next choice. Yes, and uh, reiterating something that Andy said earlier, the curse of Cain still has not presented itself. Yeah, 100%. Uh, yeah, which, which later elves would probably realize, like we're talking thousands of years later, would probably look back and go, hmm, that's probably a red sign. Um, <laughs> it's probably a red flag of some kind. But I don't yeah, think they I really... think it's Yeah, I agree completely. And I think it's worth adding just one other point as well. The elves themselves probably weren't that aware of it. Because yeah, they probably didn't know yet. It was very much Inarian's issue. And Inarian denied it. Mm. it he, this is not an issue. And the curse was his alone. He was the one that was wearing the crown. He was the one that was dealing with that. His family's quite aside from it. Um, and the fact that it curses the entire line is at this point not really a primary thought. It becomes one, though, because bloody hell does Malekith make some fun choices. Yeah. So Malekith comes home. He's doing a great job expunging the Chaos Cults. Uh, you know, he's kind of having... And he's back in Ulth 1, which means that they're at, Malekith actually starts to deal with a lot of discomfort regarding the politics of the elves. And I think he begins to see a lot of the issues with it and that he sees a lot of these elves who are kind of sitting around... Like they don't know what's going on out in the real world. They a lot of them probably think chaos is permanently defeated. Yeah, um, I'm gonna add what, an extra little point there too. Yeah, this go is ahead. the point when he's killing elves. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, oh, yeah. this is worth mentioning because everything else has been him going out and he comes home. And what is it that he does? He comes back to root out chaos amongst his own kind, who should fucking know better as far as he's concerned. And Ultimately, at the heart of it, he's killing elves for the first time, probably in his life. He's going back and he is taking to task his own people. And that immediately moves him from being someone who is purely a hero for his species, for his kind, into someone who is now, for some, a deeply divisive figure. Because he's at the very peak of elf murder. Even if they're bad elves, because not all of them will be. Mistakes will be made. Particularly when you're being brutal and you're inquisiting inquisiting your way through elven society things are going to go wrong but as far as we can tell he was pretty brutal in his attempts to root them out yes and while it's not common in like it's not super it's not as common nowadays it's worth noting that all of elf society was still one at this point yeah, yeah. Ignore, ignoring the colonies so like you have some elves that are a little more on the dark colonies yeah. I would argue even the colonies at this point are still well, they're still well, ex, they're still part of the rule to a degree yeah, where where I'm going with it is that you have to remember that the Nagarith elves and like a lot of the darker aspects that the High Elves try really hard to project later on are still very present in oh, that, yeah. yeah, there's an Inquisition. So, hey, you've got this neighbor that's been pissing you off or you need to get rid of them for X reason. Absolutely, there are people planting evidence on one another. They're, the Cult of Pleasure yeah. is trying to throw Malekith off the trail. So, like, it, absolutely innocents are dying. Yeah, um, um, the the, high, the elves of Ulthuin are not the high elves, and don't think of them as that just now. Yeah, no. they're uh, in terms of the overall map of what the elves will become. You could argue they're almost closer to the wood elves than any of the other ones. In that they mm. uh, they are at one with both both sides of the pantheon, the Mandela of gods, um, and that means that there is a significant undercurrent of 
darkness isn't the right term and I don't like it, but certainly an undercurrent of accepting a broader array of potential solutions. Yeah. And uh, this, so Malekith, you know, he's full on witch hunter general at this point. And he is, yeah, he's following <laughs> all of these really trails. And the thing is, Malekith is amazing at it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he he's probably a little more kill happy than he should, trigger happy than he should be. But especially because, like, he starts kind of lapping up a lot of the political, you know, he's being buoyed up by a lot of the the people that love him and all this stuff. But he ends up following the trail and it leads him back to mom. Um, and Marathi, to her like Marathi is a very good schemer and a lot of ways Marathi did not want to be discovered by him. So there is a lot of credit to Malekit that he ends up following it back to mom. Um, but he confronts her and wildly enough, they fight. They have a huge wizard duel because Marathi basically is like, you would not dare arrest me. And he genuinely doubles down on, I made a commitment. I will take this to the top and you are the top. Like this, this, this ends here. So they have a big fight. Um, and Malekith with the circle of iron defeats his mother. Um, it is, there is kind of a funny note that magically he's not quite able to overwhelm her, but what it does allow him to do is close the gap. And when he gets close to Marathi, he actually overwhelms her physically because she cannot keep up with him in a fight. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and so Marathi is taken down and this what this leads to probably the most pivotal moment or one of the most pivotal moments in Malekith's entire life is he has to decide what to do with his mother. Yep. Um, because Marathi and Marathi very much throws it in his face of, is he going to kill his own mom? And like Andy said earlier, despite everything that he knows she's done and that she's at the center of this and the fact that he has been very executioner style, he doesn't, he doesn't kill mom. Um, instead he takes her prisoner, he arrests her and he takes her back to Lothern to be locked up in the prisons, uh, near the Phoenix court. So, so yeah, which Mal- to Morathi or Marathi at this point, very much starts whispering in her son's ear. And this is the point in Malachi's life where that poison starts to stick. Yeah, I think it's worth a small point worth adding here as well. Yeah. Um, let's look at Marathi and her motivations. Her ultimate motivations here are to see her son as Phoenix King. Yep. Get um, and and you can clearly see what her plan is here if you want to look for it. And her plan is obvious: utterly destabilize the rule of the current Phoenix King and bring her own son in to fix it. And it one hundred percent works. Mm-hmm. Um, it, she is thoroughly successful regardless of what words may have been bandied about no matter what she may look like as a potential chaos cult oh, yeah she wins not. she okay? wins Absolutely. she has won this day she's got what she wanted mm-hmm. she's got her son where she wants and if you're looking for someone who is cold calculating and doing whatever needs to be done for what she believes is the best outcomes for the elves as a whole she's 100 succeeded um and the very cults that she's created have been destroyed by her son if you want to look at her as someone who isn't a Slanesh worshipper, you have all of the clues there to show she isn't. She's mm. using the weakness of idiots who would be willing to accept that sort of foolishness into their lives to install her son as king. Yeah, and and I, I saw someone kind of ask a question earlier, uh, wondering what you know what did the elves been doing all of this time? Like, why did Marathi make the Pleasure cults. You have to keep in mind all these thousands of years. Malakid's off been playing hero. Marathi has been plotting. Um, yeah, like the, 
the moment her son was not declared Phoenix King and Malkith was like, mom, calm down. Like, yeah, sure. She calmed down, but that's because she started thinking <laughs> and she, those gears were turning and she was like, how, even if my son doesn't want it, how do I get him on the throne? Because that is his destiny. That yes. is, he is an Aryan son. He is the living embodiment of my husband. He needs to be on the throne, even if he doesn't want it. How do I get him there? If you want to think of her motivation, imagine this. She's a woman who is utterly in love with her now dead husband. And if you can just imagine yourself being that person who is so utterly, utterly consumed by that, and then that person saying to you, I want my son to be king. doesn't matter if that happened or not. That's where she's sitting. Mm -hmm. um, and all of everything that she is, her passion is dedicated towards this end. And that means anything, any step at all that can bring that about is 100% acceptable. And if that means that a whole bunch of elves corrupt for the benefit of elves as a whole, as in getting my son on the throne, that's fine. Yeah, and and this is the part where Malekith's tale starts becoming a tragedy, and also there's a lot of dramatic irony in that we, the audience, know that if Malekith had just stayed the course, he would have been Phoenix King, and there wouldn't have been any problems. Um, but Marathi isn't patient; she's not willing to wait, and she doesn't care what um, act, you know if Malekith earns. Because in her mind, he's already earned it. He's born an Aryan son; he deserves to be king. So yeah. she starts really whispering into Malekith's ear and she starts pointing out Belshanar's flaws. She starts pointing out, hey, do you see how Belshanar's taking credit for everything you've done in the colonies? All the fighting you've done, the soldiers you've lost, the friends that have died, um, your relationship with the dwarves, your defeat of chaos. Belshanar's taking credit for all of it. He's sitting here not doing anything. He's loafing around on his throne, allowing these pleasure cults to pop up. All of this is Belshazzar's weakness. Look what he's doing to us because he's so weak, which is not completely wrong. <laughs> um, Belshazzar was not the strongest of the Phoenix Kings by a, kind of a large margin. He was completely out of his depth. Um, but then you could also argue that look at the great empire that he built that could be arguably greatest yeah. as well. Um, I, I think that it would be easy to take almost any line with him. Um, and in, in some respects, that's the weakness of his rule. Anyone could claim they were his, but equally because he was so generic in terms of the overall benefits that he brought to society, anyone could say that he didn't do enough um, yeah. because he did just enough. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Am I, I lost. being lost? Oh, nope. Okay, I think you're back now. Well, okay. That's yeah, cool. okay, there you are. <laughs> it was a very dramatic pose. It was good. <laughs> but uh, no, I agree. And like the 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 Sundering books do a beautiful job of painting Belisharnar of he he genuinely is a good king, but he did not know how to deal with the pleasure cults. Um, he was not willing to pull the trigger on other elves. Um, yeah. like he was not comfortable with Marathi did, a, I think, a very good job of knowing what Belshanar would and would not be willing to do, and she pushed him to that point. Yeah, that's why Belshanar called Malekith home because he yeah. literally was like, "I don't, I can't do this. I'm not a." Uh, he was not a general. Belshanar was not a warrior. He was a peacetime ruler. And again, Marathi wins. She got what she wanted. Yeah. So yeah. in any event, Marathi is imprisoned. Uh, she spends a lot of time with Malekith. Like mm -hmm. he starts seeing her literally every day because he lives there. And Malekith kind of in his head, he tells himself, 
I'm trying to like learn everything from Marathi. I'm going to manipulate my mother so I can learn where the rest of the pleasure cults are. And I'm going to root this. I'm going to grab this by the roots and pull it out. But in reality, he's being very heavily influenced by what she's saying to him. And a lot of what she's saying to him, she has been concocting these words for thousands of years. And she knows her son. She knows her son very, very well. Yeah, okay, um, let's let's be blunt here. Okay, by this point, Marathi is ancient uh, by anyone's mm. reckoning. Okay, she's a mass manipulator and also a very, very capable individual manipulator. She has a very clear goal, and that is her son. Um, she is, by most accounts, the most beautiful elf or indeed creature that exists in the world. Um, she has managed to bring about effectively everything her son needs to become the next king. She is quite extraordinary as an individual. It's very easy to cast her, particularly at this point, as a horrible manipulator, but she's almost the opposite to him. This is his mom. This is someone who knew his dad properly. This is mm. someone who can speak cogently to those times and what has come about. And, and arguably, if you're wanting to look between the lines, you can now see her saying the truth. And the truth is, you should be king. This came about because you should be king. Um, and him being confronted with his younger version of himself, who was not yet capable of taking those steps, who instead bowed down before the other Phoenix King and being told, dude, the problem of all these cults is ultimately sourced in yourself. And the reason that chaos is rising here is because you weren't there to put it down. You need to be the one that's here. Yeah. And very much putting it to him of that, if you like, you have the moxie now, you have the guts to do what needs to be done. That's what you've yep. been doing since you came home. So do what needs to be done. Um, mm -hmm. and he does. So Malekith, uh, this is when he becomes a very, very big shift is Malekith finally fully commits to the idea he should be king. And mm -hmm. th the thing that really shows how fucking brilliant Marathi is is that she knows Belshanar so well. Like we're not even talking about Malekith this way, just Belshinar, that she predicts how Belshinar is talking to Malekith. Like she mm -hmm. knows how Belshinar acts. She's been around him for a very long time. And because she's she's still an Arian's wife, like she still has a lot of influence in the Phoenix Court. And Marathi predicts what Belshinar is going to say to Malekith, and she weaponizes that to tell Malekith, I know how he thinks he's gonna do XYZ, and he's doing it to take credit or to use you for his own ends when Belshinar isn't doing that he's being genuine so when Malekith is talking to Belshinar Belshinar says exactly what Marathi told him he would say but yeah. instead of Malekith hearing it for what it is he's hearing what his mother told him it actually is yeah 100% and Marathi's greatest um uh, her greatest weapon amongst all the rest of the awesomeness that we've discussed, is the fact that she's also a seeress. She's using magic all the time to peer into the future. And this becomes a core part of her character later when she moves up to Gone and peers into the Chaos Waste to see what's coming next and forms the sorceresses. Um, but uh, because of that, her greatest weapon here is the truth. And it allows her to tell the biggest lies because she can just tell truth after truth after truth bomb. And it constantly looks like something that you're like, no, that won't happen. It happens. And she can say, see, I told you, son. See, I told you, son. And it makes her look like a better repository of information, a better repository of the truth than his own actual senses. Because his senses and his expectations go in one direction. And she says, no, listen, I know what's coming. It's this. 
it comes and she says and that happened because of this and that's where she sows the extra seeds of doubt yeah so Malekith pulls the trigger. Uh, he goes to visit Belshinar, and they have a very private conversation where it's actually kind of implied Belshinar is about to reveal his whole, like, you should be king, and here's how I think we should do this. That way, like, I can retire, you can take over as king, and yada yada, because I'm exhausted. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> um, and Malekith uh, offers a toast early in the conversation, and the chalice is poisoned. So, yeah, so Belshinar <laughs> dies. Um, and Malekith yeah. summons all of the princes to the shrine of Ashuran who don't know what's going on. Um, they, um, Malekith did not let news of the Phoenix King's death get out yet. So, the Phoenix King dies. All the princes gather to the shrine of Ashuran with the understanding that the Phoenix King has summoned them, which was mm -hmm. a little Malekith played his hand a little too hard. Um, because he was so assured of his victory at this point because he finally. He knew he had a lot of support. He had a ton of support. And Malekith finally came to the decision of, I'm going to make this happen. It must happen. And anyone who doesn't agree with it is in the way of progress. They're in the way of the future of the elves. And I'm not going to allow weakness to hold us back anymore. Um, so Malekith summons all of the princes and they all show up at the Shrine of Ashuran. And everyone's like, Malekith walks in with his mother and also a very large guard. Um, and an important thing to note about the Shrine of Ashuran is that it's a place supposed to be a place of true neutrality because Ashuran is a very neutral god. Um, and it's supposed to be a place where uh, pacifism. No one is allowed to have weapons in the Shrine of Ashuran. The Shrine Keepers cannot have weapons. Guests cannot have weapons. You are not allowed to bring weapons in. So Malekith shows up and everyone's like, where the hell is the Phoenix King? Uh, where's Belshinar? And Malekith drops a huge bomb. I tracked all the pleasure cults and it turns out Belshinar was the master cultist belshinar was yeah, belshinar was the <laughs> ultimate servant of slanesh and when i confronted him he killed himself um he he killed himself rather than face justice and a lot of the princes it's pretty much split 50 50 um half the princes go of course belshinar was weak he was awful i always knew malachi should be king obviously malachi should be king and the other half go that's very convenient, Malekith. <laughs> That's suspiciously convenient. Yeah, this is the one that um, when you're looking at the various motivations of the characters and what brings them to, this is actually one of the hardest ones to clearly justify. Um, this is one of the hardest ones to look at and say, what was Malekith thinking? Why did he choose to do it this way? Why did he pose it this way? And the answer is, in most cases, difficult to pin down. Because he was in a position of almost absolute authority and he chose a ridiculous route, an actual ridiculous route here. He had everything. He had all the cards in his hands and he chose to chuck half of them away to pursue a route that didn't necessarily make the most sense. And this is the one that you have to go. So is this potentially a fascination? Was he perhaps beguiled by his mother that's how some people try to justify it others justify it that his power his need for power had grown to such an extent that he cast aside solid logic and instead just tried to push his way through it um there's there's quite a lot of unsure bits here and i wouldn't like to be in a position where i said it was this. Yeah, I think in my own little kind of head canon, I, I think I like the theory that he he got high on his own fumes of that of everyone, his mother fawning over him, 
Belshinar fawning over him, everyone fawning over him. I think he genuinely believed he could pull off a pretty blatant assassination and nobody would second guess him. Or they would just say, oh, well, you're supposed, you should be king anyway. So who cares? Who cares about Belshinar? Yeah. Um, I, I like to, whenever I, for example, if I was going to be writing this um, and I was going to try and justify this in um, one, an elf book, for example, mm. uh, I would take one of two routes. Route number one would be leave it unsure because that allows for yeah. the individual reader to make it up themselves. It's a super cop-out, easy way to resolve it. <laughs> <laughs> I have done that on more than one occasion. Classic, classic open door. <laughs> yeah, totally. um, because sometimes, sometimes you look at different versions of the background, they don't quite marry, so your best bet is to just put some Vaseline over it and not look at it too hard. Um, the other alternative would be to try and actually delve into the politics and put Malekith in a desperate place. Put Malekith in a position where if he didn't move now, someone else would. If um, he didn't push now, something else would happen. Kalador rising, the armies of Nagarai swooping down, filled with cultists of various types. There's so much pressure coming, all of which is detailed in the background. All you need is a little bit extra push in that um, to get a mind that's already damaged through the death of his best friend who has already had to kill elf after elf after elf to get where he's going, to see potential real cultists out there coming down, knocking on his door, his only choice was to act immediately. You would need something to just justify that through to his head. It's not so much he's drunk in power, he's desperate. Because it requires mm. desperation to take desperate lengths. And he goes to desperate lengths here. He does something which is actually awful. Truly terrible. The first actual act, if you want to look at Malekith's life, where you go, what are you yeah. doing? This why? I, I would say this is this is like Dark Elf, full on Witch King number one. The moment when Witch King Malekith becomes a reality. Mm. And, um, and granted, and it's it's yeah. I I can't remember. I want to say in the Sundering Omnibus, I want to say that his mother convinced him Belshar was going to do something. Like, either he was about to, like, give Malachi some piece of information where he was, like, banishing him or exiling him or something. And that's the only thing I can think. I but, can't recall. That's why yeah, it's, that's why, yeah, it's so long since I, I read it. <laughs> I, I cannot, I cannot uh, recall off the top of my head how, what because the book does say what's going through his mind, but I can't recall what's going through his mind. Because it's... I, it's it's a hard pill to swallow because it's it is obvious what Malekith did. Like it's not very subtle. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I'd also note as well, just in general, that uh, when we're writing books about Warhammer, which I have done more times than I care to mention, you tend to find that most of the novels are considered not to be canon. And, yeah, uh, that that is perhaps something that will be alien to many of you out there. But that's because Black Library was removed from the studio and often took stories in different directions to what the studio would have preferred. And when the studio itself returns to material that perhaps Black Library have moved in a different direction, they often ignore it. They take the bits they like and they go, that bit's cool, that bit's cool. And then they just rewrite it into something that matches what they require for the stories they're telling. And if someone was brought in to say, justify Malekith, that's what would happen. They would look at the story and they'd say, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sure it says something in there, but that's just a story. Here's our truth. Um, and... I think that this is the key moment that requires the justification for, as it says there, Malekith is Anakin Skywalker. What is the point, <laughs> yeah. okay, that makes him go and kill all the fucking younglings? Um, and we're not just talking about killing other elves. What's the point where he then turns around and kills the other freaking princes who yeah. don't agree with him? So, 
So holy yeah. shit, here yeah. he comes. Malekith, I will say, to his credit, it's not like he didn't know his plan was kind of stupid. <laughs> he seemed to be very keenly aware of that. Because in the Shrine of Assurance, he goes, Phoenix King's dead. All right, let's pick a new Phoenix King. I vote myself. And everyone and a lot of the Phoenix princes go. The thing that's interesting is that Malekith actually probably would have won that election. Oh, yeah. But the other the princes that didn't agree with him are like, no. We think you killed Belshinar. We want an investigation. Like, we want a full investigation into Belshinar. You have to prove he is a cultist, or yep. we're pretty sure you murdered the Phoenix King. And Malekith says, uh, no, you don't get to do that. Vote. And they say, no, we refuse. And if you declare yourself king, our kingdoms will not support you. And Malekith says, all right, fuck you guys then. And he motions, and surprise, his guards brought their weapons into the shrine. You're not allowed to have weapons, and it's a massacre. Yeah, out come the Nagaraidi's troops, and out come the stabbing. Oh, yeah. Game and, of Thrones time. Yeah, and it, it's full on <laughs> Game of Thrones. Nobody escapes. Like, yep. some people think, uh, like, literally not a single prince survives. They all get utterly obliterated. Um, Marathi, like, yay, Malekith is Phoenix King. What could go wrong? And Malekith walks into the flame of Shuren. Now, I think this is a really core part of Malekith. I think the best part about what happens next, and we're, I think we're going to have to talk about the end times a bit here. Malekith at this point suffers from one massive flaw, which is that he romanticizes his father and he doesn't actually know what happened that day. I do not think Malekith realized what you really have to give to walk through the flame of Assurance. Because when Belshinar walked through it, he didn't really. Belshinar was shielded by a bunch of magic. A bunch of wizards cast a barrier on him so Belshinar could pass through the flames without being burned. And the elves told themselves, if you could pass through the flame, you're Phoenix King. Hooray. But Anarian died. Like, Anarian suffered agonizing suffering and full-on died but just, would not back down yeah he just, just kept crawling would not back down because azuran had to come and th that's the big one he had to come because his people would die so as he was burning out to his very last cinder he refused to back down there was no movement and that's a ah. big big point okay so uh uh king king in uh the youtube chat says that I can get uh, he had Malekith had been convinced that Kalidor was going to be yeah. ascended above him. So that's why he got desperate. That makes sense. I, it was running at the back of my head about Kalidor yeah. and the armies coming around to Nagarath. I knew all the elements were there. I just couldn't quite remember exactly how they pulled together. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that. so the flame of Shuren, Malekith walks into it and in his arrogant, in, in a mixture of his arrogance and misunderstanding, he doesn't prep himself in any way, shape or form. He is not aware of what he's walking into and he doesn't shield himself in any way. Like he just goes right in like his dad did, but he doesn't understand what his dad went through. So when Malekith walks into the flame of Shuren, he gets burned like a motherfucker. Um, but then so did his dad. Yeah. Um, and I think this is for me, this is effectively almost the start of the witch King era. Um, and the witch Kira ends with her with him going through this flame again um, as we move towards the end times and whatever you think of that particular material. Um, but what is worth saying that now we move into the the judgment in many respects of Malekith and his failures and his flaws in his character and the next however many thousand years are going to be nothing more than 
him learning to be the real king that he should have been. And that's one way of looking at this particular story. If you're looking for a proper arc and how he got to where he was and where he got to, ultimately, this is the point where he has to make a choice. And he walks in, he gets fried to almost a cinder and chooses to leave. Yeah. Now, you right can argue it's because he couldn't cope. You can yeah. argue it's because he thought he was going to die. You can argue because the pain was too much. You could argue because he refused Ajuran and had too much pride at this point to accept another god's right to burn him. There's lots of arguments you can take. But mm -hmm. ultimately, he did not burn up. Yeah, he throws himself back the way he walked yeah. into the flame. So he doesn't <laughs> pass through it. And of course, the High Elves liked a positive of, oh, he was judged. Like, he was too sinful and Ashuran was like, no, you're bad. <laughs> and shot him out of the flame. But I, I do think it is completely canonical that ultimately Malekith threw himself out of the flame. Yes. It wasn't Ashuran that cast him out. Malekith did. Yep. Um, now, why he did, like Andy said, is up to a lot of interpretation. And I think, I don't even know if Malekith himself knows why. Um, I think he probably does. Um, and I'll say one reason why. Because this burning flame is not just a flame. This is the flame of a god. This is the point where the god touches the material realm. This is arguably, if you want to view it in a slightly different way, almost like a tiny little chaos gate. Yeah, it's, thank a you point, hammer, by the way. it's a point where the uh, aether touches the mortal realms. A god touches here, and he touched that god. It wasn't just burning fire. There's something mm. deeper. Um, and that would suggest that Malekith, who is brilliant, intelligent, perhaps on his wit's end in a very dangerous mental position just now because of all the danger he sees, but he's still looking for the best for Ulthwin at this point before he is ravaged. Um, and I think... I think it would probably be, if I was being fair and trying to write this up as fair, much more spiritual and much more divinely based than just simply him. Because if we make it just him, we lessen the Warhammer world as a whole, where the gods themselves are definitely real, depending upon how you think they manifest. Mm. Um, and he just walked into and confronted a god and chose to walk away from him, chose to turn him down, chose to back yeah. away from mm. that god. Ajarin, the judge, you could argue judged him, or you could argue Malekith judged himself unworthy. There's a thousand different arguments you could take, but I think you would definitely, if you were trying to look at it, say that the god himself is involved. Yeah, and that's that's also, yeah, that's a very excellent point of um, Ashurin, there are a lot of things Ashurin could have done in that moment. Um, Ashurin kind of did what he always does, which is that he does nothing. Uh, <laughs> waits kind of for everything to play out um um but in any event malekith is throws himself back out of the flame um marathi is horrified because she did not think it was going to go down that way um can you bring up balak or the dark master some comic because i actually think that's hilarious and speaks to his character in yeah. a nutshell um if i was writing it there would be a strong element of this because by this point his pride is Beyond peak. Um, and yeah, I could see him looking at God and saying, why should I kneel to you? Why should I burn to you? That will speak to the, the Phoenix the Phoenix King, the witch king he becomes. Um, and what he has to break himself for to become later on the Eternity King. 
um, yeah. if one is accepting that. But yeah, would he, would that be something Malekith could arrive at? I'd say, oh, oh yeah, well, yeah, hell yes. Yeah, and and one point we're going to get into in a minute, uh, actually, I guess we can just kind of touch on it, is that it, it is worth noting that Ashurin does, whether he found Malekith lacking or he was disappointed by what Malekith does, he does seem to genuinely punish Malekith. And that the, the thing that's really interesting about Malekith is that he encounters the flame of Ashurin at least two more times in his life before the end times. And both times they are used as weapons. It's used as a weapon against him. And it's yep. very effective, which does smack of Ashurin is genuinely pissed at him or at least not. I would say it's more like a parent smacking a naughty child and saying, grow up. Hmm. Um, you could so you could argue it a different way. For example, Azurin is upset with him, not because he tried to do what he did and all the rest of it, but because he wouldn't accept his place. Yeah. And so, so you got uh, different interpretations if you fancy. Yeah. And uh and so like one of those times which uh, we're gonna circle back and around in front of, but like the Malekith almost wins the sundering. Um, mm -hmm. like the sundering yeah. we're going to talk about a little bit is a very complex war. Um, we're going to only very lightly touch on it, but in the end, so before, before he tries to undo the vortex, which was like kind of a ridiculous suicide plan. But before that, um, Malekith almost wins legitimately wins the war and he duels against Kalidor the first, um, who is it's Prince. Em one. Yeah. Prince Emmerich. Uh, but he, um, wasn't there at the shrine of Asher when everyone got slaughtered. He was out. He didn't want to be there. He was off doing other things. So he's like literally the only guy. Um, and they're like, you have to be king. You're literally the only person. You got to be king. He was um, probably going to be anyway. Um, yeah, as I very recall. True. And, yeah, he was the primary yeah. alternative candidate, which hated is probably politics. why he wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. totally. Hated politics. Uh, he tried to avoid it as best he could. But uh, he ends up making his way to the Shrine of Ashuran. That's when that whole legacy thing with the White Lions happens, where uh, Malekith knew that Kalor would potentially be a problem. Sent assassins after him. White lions save him. Because um, Malekith is full, like, mask off at this point. Yep, but yep. Um, when Kalor the First and Malekith have their big finale duel at the end of the Sundering, Malekith wins. Like, Malekith beats the snot out of Kalidor. Um, It's really not that close. Uh, yep. Malekith completely overwhelms him. Um, between sorcery and just he's flat out in many ways a better a dragon fighter. as well as alcohol is that yeah what he's on Sulek? is that what uh, he's on Sulek? yes that is sulek yeah yeah uh because yeah, sulek yeah. died <laughs> at uh fenival plain much later yeah, yeah, yeah. but um so malekith uh oh man i forgot to bring even bring up malekith's first dragon dies during the wars in the colonies doesn't it his very first dragon uh not his first black dragon but his first regular dragon i think dies Anyway, probably not too far before Snorri dies. Man, he had a rough time right at the end there. Um, yeah, he did. He a lot did. of tragedy. And I think that that speaks to a lot of the decisions that are to come. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he, he's quite a broken individual, much like his father before him. Yeah. So yeah, actually, yeah, exactly. So yeah. Malekith beats Kalidor, but we're, and Ashurin, in a sense, kind of steps in, where the it's the Phoenix Guard that actually saved the day. Uh, the Phoenix Guard show up and they start fighting Malekith. Uh, around Kalidor and they stab him with their halberds and when uh, normally that wouldn't have been a huge necessarily a huge deal but when they strike Malekith their halberds reignite the flame of Ashurin because yeah. the thing about Malekith the really important thing about Malekith that we're going to talk about now here now that informs a lot of his character Malekith is in perpetual agony yeah. um he is 
like a lot of people are like, wow, he's in like a full suit of armor or whatever, but like, you know, he is Darth Vader <laughs> and that yeah. Malekith, just like Darth Vader is in horrible agony 24 seven. I don't even and think then, Malekith sleeps. Like he's and, literally just. Suffering. And this isn't, this isn't going to become something that he actually accepts and becomes a part of him for thousands of years. It's not until um, the battle for Finneville Plain, as I recall, and he casts himself into the realms of chaos um, uh, that he comes to terms with what he is and the pain and finds almost a, a zen quiet because of the horror he inflicts himself, playing the escape card for those of you who played the old Warhammer yeah. games. Um, <laughs> I play escape! Screw you, yeah. Techless! Yeah. Um, but uh, th this is going to... Um, I, I, I said, this massively shapes his character because he's no longer um, the... Not just the beautiful prince who rode from realm to realm to realm looking extraordinary yeah his father's the, image the mental anguish as well as the physical anguish he's under constantly and they, upon one reading purely by his own hand because he refuses to accept the rule of azurin because as has been mentioned he effectively is azurin if you take the eternity king and all the rest of it as any way near the actual story of malachan he is going to become effectively almost a representation of that god but he refused it that's yeah. the only thing that makes sense. So every time the fire comes, it's not just the pain of it. It's almost the pain of him refusing that God. No wonder he's burning up. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very much worth pointing out that, uh, like Andy said, like the fire, it's not, a, you know, it's not a fire fire. It's literally the essence of a God that is broken into the mortal realms and is kind of yeah. stationary. And so it, although it does burn him like flame, it's not, like regular burning as we understand it it's more like his soul is literally set afire by something that never goes out like there is a spark of assurance permanently in him that yeah. he cannot get rid of he never gets rid of it for the rest of his life um and that spark is always burning him always which if you think about it is awful like malekith spends six seven or yeah seven thousand years or eh, he's well not the entire time but like a good five thousand years just five six thousand years there yeah just I mean, is that all <laughs> kind of feeling like he's perpetually on fire and his nerves don't get to burn away because it's not a physical pain but well, it is yeah. a physical pain but it's not you know what i mean uh mm -hmm. but uh anyway so like the phoenix but yeah the phoenix guard that reignites that flame and malkith loses his shit because yep. it is so awful like the pain is so bad. He just runs. He runs away. Um, he throws himself out. Um, in like he grabs he grabs his dragon, he just fucking abandons the field because he can't take it. Um, and that actually costs him that war. Um, because he loses the battle after that. Um, yeah. you know, Too it's much. funny you say that, Toka Gaming, because there is there is a one of my favorite scenes, just because it's a little goofy, is the way Tyrion and Teclas defeat Nakaria's children is they literally cause him to accidentally pass one of his arms through the flame of Shuren, and he gets, he turns into Slanesh Barbecue. Like, he gets burnt up bad. <laughs> yeah, that was a mistake, off, Nakari. That was yeah. a mistake. And then he falls off a cliff because Nakari is literally a Saturday morning cartoon villain. Uh, but <laughs> Pretty much is. Um, <laughs> like, he's about as successful as one. But uh, in any event, so, um, as we said, Malekith, he gets horribly burned. His mother uses her magic to kind of keep him alive, despite the pain he's in. And he's in brought many back... Respects, in many respects, and for those looking for allusions to what came before, doing exactly what she did for Anarion, soothing yeah. the pains because of the curse under which he's done. And now you could argue it's the curse of Azurin that's running through 
burning through Malekith's veins. And she's probably using exactly the same magics, the same potions, the same lotions to protect her son that she did previously to protect her husband. Yeah, because what protected Anarian from God's wrath also protects Malekith from God's wrath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, quite. Um, so Malekith is taken back to Anlek, where he is put in the armor. Um, and I... It is so, a lot of people probably, A, don't understand how insane the armor is because the armor is created by Hotek. And Hotek is the most ridiculous fucking smith in existence outside of, like, the absolute pinnacle of the other races. Uh, Hotek yep. is a priest of all who is the biggest, baddest one there is, and he wields the, the hammer of Vol. Yep. Um, and he steals it. He murders, he murders all the other priests of all at Val's anvil in Kalidor, and he steals the hammer and he runs away to Anlek because he is faithful to Marathi and Malekith. Yep. And under Marathi's, uh, with Marathi helping him, he crafts the most powerful suit of armor, I think, in the world. Yeah, if you want to view Hotek and try to figure out exactly where he fits, not just in the cosmology, but where does he sit in the Warhammer tiers, um, consider him like the equivalent of Orion and aerial um he's almost a physical manifestation of a god on a planet he's a little bit like an aria before him he's almost vol um he's carrying vol's fucking hammer and he is sitting there making armor that only the gods themselves can make to keep what is effectively a god to be if you go for the whole end times in action yeah and uh, like a lot of people know that the you know in the the later lore they they really go heavy on like all of the elven gods in order to get around assurance decree that they can't be involved in the world they take on mortal incarnates yep. um and daith is kind of revealed to be the vol incarnate but yep. i would actually say that despite that like daith literally being the god vol in mortal form i would say hotek is still a more skilled smith because he has that fucking hammer Yep. Um, because that hammer is so bonkers. Um, and he hangs on to it until he dies in the end times. But um uh so he forges the suit for Malekith, the circlet of iron becomes a part of Malekith, uh, and Malekith is reborn as the Witch King. He will never again leave that suit of armor, ever. He cannot eat, he cannot drink, he cannot uh feel the pleasures of the flesh at all. Um, he can literally breathe and talk. That's it. Because the armor is melded to his flesh. It's awful. Um, and he it like it keeps him alive. But um, a lot of what Malekith becomes, he literally experiences no more pleasure. Um, yeah. He's reached the end of a standard life. He is now a, a creature. <laughs> he is something different. Yep. And uh, that and that ties very much into now we kind of look at Malekith the Witch King. When Malekith is... He is so consumed by agony and hurt emotionally, physically, spiritually. Like, as far as he's concerned, his gods have betrayed him. His people have betrayed him. Um, like, everything. Everything that he has ever stood for and built up has betrayed him. And he's fucking furious. Yep. And he unleashes the Sundering, which is one of the most bitter, awful wars in Warhammer Fantasy history. Um, it's a full civil war. It's awful. Uh, father fights son mother fights daughter a whole whole thing and the elves are split very cleanly uh, as far as like supporters of malekith versus those against him um, yeah um this is also worth um uh, saying this is the first point where we clearly need to say that um that the non 
what is to become dark elf contingent are now becoming the high elf contingent um the azure they are no longer representing the full uh, mandela of the gods they are representing a part of it and a lot of the breakup of elven society broke up according to their individual cultures and beliefs as much as they did for the individual politics um and there's a reason that the mandela massively split and the high elves lean so heavily one way and the dark elves lean so heavily another and that's the process of this war and it's a part of this war that's very rarely delved into in any of the material because most of the writing for this was created before those gods existed yeah. um so they never really delved into that but if you're just looking at it from an above perspective this is where the high elves are created and the dark elves are created and ultimately um isn't where the wood elves are created per se because they're already going they are the remnant of what was already the elves before that um, and Malekith effectively ends up leading a court of half of the elven psyche, so to speak. Certainly at half the elven pantheon with smatterings and bits that they accepted from the other side. Yeah, and, yeah, because uh, a big thing is that the, the colonies are very heavily insulated from what's going on in Oath 1. Um, like a lot of... Um a lot of what's happening in Ulthuan like trickles back to the colonies, but they're like, yeah. they're left out of it a lot of the way. And they maintain the culture that they'd already had. Yep. Absolutely. Um, whereas what, with Andy's saying, like the thing about the high elves is that a lot of people look at them and go, Oh, they're like the good guys. And it's like in a very, very specific way of looking at it. You could argue yeah. that <laughs> but what it really is, is that they completely reject uh, a genuinely healthy balance. They yes. look at the healthy balance and they say to themselves, oh, well, Malekith was a healthy balance and look what he turned into. So we need to take everything about us that could potentially be bad and suppress it. And um, I don't think bad is necessarily the right word because it's very easy to turn this into a fight between good and evil. It's a right. fight between one way of life and another way of life. And Malekith and everything that he was represented came to be one way of life that they were rejecting. Um, whilst on the high elf side, they were they were very much focusing on a different way of life with different gods being important. And for the colonies um, who accepted the overall picture, this is when the real fractures begin to deepen because they are elves. They don't see the distinction between the high elf and the dark elf as it became to be known, the Druki and the Azur. Um, we follow Azure and we follow, well, depending on which god you want to fall on, it could be Cain, it could be Aerith Kyle, it could be almost anyone depending upon which particular write-up you read from which particular writer, but definitely the Dark Elf side. Um, mm. Yes, they do indeed. They are to resent um, the Syrathan. Um, and that's that's where the divisions between the colonies really come and the Wood Elves become Wood Elves and the other colonies from something perhaps a little bit different as well, those that don't return. Yeah, and uh, I um, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on uh, the Wood Elves and Colonies in a hot second, but Sundering happens. We're, we're just going to skip it. Uh, it's big! Yeah, it's big. A lot of crazy shit happens. But oh, the yeah. important thing about Malekith is I think this is what really drives Malekith to the extremes as far as Malekith at this point lets go of the pretense of I need to function within a certain set of morals in order to accomplish my goals. And he becomes, I will win at any cost. Yeah, he um, focuses in on just the darker um, aspect, if you want to go by the Dark Elf analogy. the um, uh, That set of gods, the underworld gods, those that chose to fight the Chaos Gods all the way back in the very first Elven War, rather than withdraw um, as Azurin commanded. Azurin commanded, all gods withdraw. 
um, but some of them refused to do so and continued to fight on. Um, and there became a split of the gods between the underworld gods, those that stayed material, those that didn't. Um, and it's uh, it's fascinating to see it repeat because the old god story repeating again with the new elf story, which is uh, big. I mean, it, it's, it's not worth going through the whole war because you could literally do a stream for five hours on just all the shit oh, yeah. that happens here. But the big callback is all of this um, gives you a Malekith who is fundamentally focusing on a different aspect of elven society now. Instead of representing it all, he represents only certain parts, and it's fucking ruthless. Um, because mm. he has almost certainly denied Azurin and everything that Azurin represents. Denied what his father accepted, perhaps denying his father even in turn. Um, mm. Because he has rejected the god that burnt him. Utterly rejected it. And gone down a different path. And all of the horror that led up to that decision has now made manifest a character that completely shapes an entire race of elves. Yeah. So this is, we see Malekith do try, he does try to conquer Ulthuan through warfare and it's bitter and awful because it's very personal. Yep, and yep, yep. he feels that, and it gets ugly. Like this is when Malekith uh, assassinates any of the Nagareth families that are not on his side. This leads to the creation of Alithanar the Shadow King uh, because mm -hmm. he murders Alithanar's entire family. But um, a lot of people die. It's awful. Um, and it's like literally every single, it's not even like each kingdom picks a side. No, it is like a split everywhere. Like a lot of, there is no kingdom that is purely loyal to one side or the other. You could argue that like, there's a little more of Nagareth is loyal to Malekith and a little more of Etain was loyal to the, um, like, uh, Prince Emmerich. I would say Caldor leaned a Caldor. little heavier on Emmerich. He's from there. Um, yeah. but even then. Lots of like not traitors, but lots of people picking sides. Yeah. That, uh, They're all picking sides. Um, yeah. um, one way to imagine this is try not to think of it as good guys and bad guys because that's the easy mm. way to do it. Uh, particularly if, imagine you're a wood elf looking in from the outside. Okay, so not even a wood elf, it's just an elf in one of the colonies, and you see the civil war that's going on over there. You don't think over there and go, Look, there's the bad guys and there's the good guys. Yeah. You see both sides. Um, uh, encapsulating certain aspects of elven society, one bitterly, ruthlessly attacking the other. And it's horrendous. Neither side are good, neither side are bad, but you can't say that one side is going to eventually hold Ulthuan. Yeah. And uh, sorry, Ragged Wise. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a great comment. It's like, it's so big. It <laughs> you can't see us. Um, but I I would definitely, uh, no, the, the, the colonies for the most part stayed out of it. Uh, because yeah. they, they really didn't understand what was going on. Until um, they get summoned back. Yeah, which we'll get yeah. to in a second. Yeah, so, that's, but that's um, later. <laughs> yeah, Malekith, uh, like we said, he loses the war, barely. Yeah. Um, but Malekith, at, and it's worth noting that Malekith is completely, genuinely insane for this uh, this moment. He's in a lot of pain. He's in a lot of agony. The, the Phoenix Guard have freshly reburned him. He's lost a very important mm -hmm. battle. Um, and he is reeling. And in that moment, Marathi, as well as some of the sorcerers, come to him with a really, frankly, stupid plan, <laughs> which is they it's say, certainly bold. Yeah, we should <laughs> unbind the vortex. And Malekith, I think, because of how much hurt he's in, very much has the idea of if I can't rule Ulthuan, no one gets to rule Ulthuan. Yeah. 
And that's um, dropped quite a few times um, by various writers who've gone for the that is the justification. But if you look at the overall picture of what's happening at the time and what the elves themselves are, you can easily add extra layers because these are proper sorcerers who aren't insane. There's a reason they're pitching this to him. And they're not pitching it to him because they want to destroy Ulthuin. They're pitching it to him because they want to win, because they think they can do it. Malekith himself is mm. unarguably out of it. Um, and following him must be a very difficult process, because I can't imagine he's in the most, let's say, solid state. But the sorcerers are. So yes. what are they pitching? They're clearly pitching an idea. And I think the only obvious answer is they're saying, we can get our magic back. We can wake up the old dragons. We can bring everything that we had back then to fruition. And you've got to remember, a lot of the generals here fought in the wars against chaos. These are not these are not weird elves who've just arrived in the last hundred years. Some of these are thousands of years old already. Yeah, some of these will even remember the time before. These are proper ancient elves, and they're going. We want what we had back. Your yeah. father was right. Your father was right, and Calador was wrong. Yeah, we look what's happened. Power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look what's happened. This has happened. And you can see there's a very clear argument here for this side. And it looks insane from the outside, but from the inside, when you think of their thought processes, they're just going, we can reclaim also in the way it should be. Yeah, and I think there's a very core part of Marathi's involvement of... Mar if there's one thing that I have to give credit for Marathi for is that she has always been very okay with end time scenarios because she deeply and genuinely believes whether misguided or not, that they, she can float above it, that her mm -hmm. power and mastery over magic is so strong that she can bind enough demons or whatever she'll have to do that they will survive, that they will yep. bind chaos to their will and make it work. So to her, Oh, the vortex is unbound. Demons will flood the plane. Yep. Great, more soldiers. Um, yeah. Agreed so, completely. And yeah. from Marathi's perspective, this is not a bad thing. This is something that will empower them, not weaken them. It is a gift, as Boromir yeah. loves to say. And once again, the Dark Elf Malekith and the Dark Elves win. At least they should have. Yeah. Uh, er, in that they <laughs> throw, they throw <laughs> this uber spell at the vortex and the high elves fail to stop it like there's a defector because one of the sorcerers goes what are we doing what the fuck? <laughs> yeah and he he even calls he literally like calls up oh, safari on the back phone oh i can't oh, remember his name I he's can't a remember great his name either. character though yeah he um, is he's great he he dies pretty horribly yeah, he, <laughs> yeah he gets he gets assassinated but uh he calls over the the, the what are now become the highlights he's like you need to stop us <laughs> but yeah malekith marathi and them they're too strong like the high elves literally do not have the magical power to stop him and malekith throws this uber spell at the vortex and unfortunately for him it ends up being a deus ex machina scenario <laughs> where it disrupts Calador ex machina yeah <laughs> yes it disrupts the vortex it does its job but what they didn't realize, and I think it's because there's no way they could have known, is that Calador is still alive and he's still yeah. in the vortex. So by undoing it, they literally just let Calador out. And yeah, Calador I'm... looks around and is like, nah, 
and just backhands <laughs> the spell right home. Because Kalador is still suffused with all of the energies that came from that vortex pulling down. Kalador's been locked in time pretty much since the ritual began, chanting forever, doing the same things again and again and again in a constant cycle. It breaks around him. He looks out and he has all of the power he had before. It's going to take something pretty freaking special for him not to just go, fuck you. And indeed, he was like, fuck you, because yeah. it's his plan and he still thinks it's right. Yeah. And that I mean, and that's even before considering that Kaldor is like one of the best mages yeah, that ever totally. maged. <laughs> I think by this point, um, uh, Malekith is probably almost his peer. Um, yeah. But the problem is just purely the difference of their individual circumstances. Yeah, one, one guy has a storm has of magic. All of the, the world's magic at his hands, and the other's on the outside with a particularly impressive circlet of iron and a lot of skill. But nevertheless, him and the cabal of sorcerers, sorceresses around them are not quite the match for what is effectively almost god power sitting in the middle of there. Thank you, Grim. Yeah, Arathian. Thank you very much. Couldn't remember uh, that name. That was really bugging me. Yeah, so, yeah, Spell gets rebound, and this is when the Sundering of the Land happens. Uh, Ulthuan is, a lot of people, because we don't have any maps of it, sadly, a lot of people do not realize how much of Ulthuan is lost. Yeah, um, totally. Like, a significant amount of the land mass is completely obliterated um, by tsunamis, earthquakes, and just, just sheer force. Like, the, the spell rebounding... A lot of people are like, oh, it's the tsunamis. It's like, yeah, the tsunamis happened after, but there were parts of Ultha one that literally just got turned to dust. Like a, a, fist, a fist just punched it. Yeah, this um, is a proper cataclysm. Yeah, so, uh, but Malekith sorcerers, credit to them, go, plan B! <laughs> Let's get the <laughs> fuck out of here! Um, and they, uh, they float their fortresses. Yep. They literally crack off their fortresses, um, and they float up above the tsunamis that come in. Everyone not in the fortress dies horribly. Millions Pretty of much. millions of elves die. It's awful. This um, is arguably the end of the Elven Empire. Um, yeah. This is the point where, even though it does continue on for a long time yet, this is the the point when it be, it stops being what it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and the wealth True. of Ultuan actually flips because thanks to a lot of the colonies and stuff, the Outer Kingdoms used to be the wealthiest. Yep. Not the inner kingdoms, but the outer kingdoms get destroyed. Wrecked. Utterly wrecked. Yeah. Even to today, like they're practically ghost towns. Um, yep. Like Tiranok, a lot of Tiranok uh, is still underwater. Uh, Nagareth is completely gone. Um, it's uh, a blasted hailhole. Yeah. There's a reason when like you look at the high elves, there, there is no army of Nagareth among the high elves. There is only the shadow warriors because there's no settlements really. Like Nagareth is gone. It is just the, it's called the Shadowlands now because there's nothing there. Um, so Nagareth, uh, so Malekith and all those guys peace out and they leave because all they have left are their fortresses. Their populations are severely reduced. They are heavily wounded. And I'm sure for them, they're reeling from the knowledge that Kalidor is there. Um, and like, oh shit, what if he can still affect us? And they get the fuck out of Dodge. Um, so they go. And they go to Nagaroth, which no one wanted to go to. Um, but this is when Malekith takes the next big step, where Malekith has now been betrayed by everything, and he start he establishes Nagaroth, which luckily their empire starts off pretty strongly because they literally just fort float the black arcs and just attach them to the land and are like, good, we have a city. There's Nagaroth. Um, it's it, it, built. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's a it's an awesome little tale um, of absolute failure, but all of his 
you could say either rebels or you could argue that they are the ones that should be in control um, because they believe Althuin is theirs. Um, they believe that anyone that's on Althuin that's denying the Phoenix King as they perceive it uh, is in the wrong. And they float up above all the un- hell they unleash and they go settle over in, and, and in Nagarond and away they go. Big yeah. castles already in place and the first black arcs ready to go. Yeah, and this takes us into the next big part of Malekith's story, which is that he starts to build up dark elf culture. And Malekith, I think this is him projecting very heavily onto his own people, becomes obsessed with rooting out weakness. Like, he becomes... I'll take a different argu- line on this Yeah, one. go ahead. I'd say that um, it's, I think it's less necessarily of Malekith's individual personality and more of the uh, Sinopite gods. It's the very nature of the gods that they themselves are coming to manifest and focus on. Um, because all of those gods got such a different view on how, let's say, society should be built. Um, and when that's compounded upon with the reality of their new environment, where they are in a frozen hellscape, um, with the chaos nightmare to the north and the need to create and build to ensure that what they might at that point think will be the elves coming to try and wipe them out. Um, so they've got to do something to allow themselves to build. And there's only one way that they can do that as far as they're concerned. And very quickly, their society doesn't just change. Their society by necessity becomes something very different based on a completely different set of morals, but not different to elves, more refined. They're only accepting certain parts of elven society because they're utterly turning their back on Azurin and everything that that particular part of the Kadai of the gods, that court represented. And by doing that, that effectively creates what had been called back in the war, the Druki, the Dark Elves, as the Dark Elves themselves manifest, um, I think, not necessarily by the command of uh, Malekith, but by all of their very natures now. This is who they are now. This is the path that they have chosen to walk down. This is the type of elves they have chosen to be. And they are not going to turn their back in pride. They have wiped out their own families. They have destroyed their homelands. Mm. They have to accept either they're wrong or they're right. And if they're right, then the path they've chosen has to be plowed down without ever looking back. And you can see how they became what they became. Yeah, and I think it's worth kind of elaborating for people listening who don't really know them. So the underworld gods, uh, the Scytherai, I think is... Is that how you pronounce it? Scyther- I, Scytherai. I, I vacillate. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Gab, Gab created them, and I've never asked him how he pronounced I, it. So. I like to say Scytherai, because I'm weird. Anyway, so um, for those unaware, um, they're a really interesting set of gods. Um, of course, the big bad one is Cain. You have Cain, the bloody-handed, Lord of Murder. Aerith Kale's arguably the big bad one. Yeah, is she, queen. yeah is, she she almost <laughs> kind of seems to like ah she almost seems like almost oh no i'm sorry i'm thinking of more i hag more uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah she is oh, sorry uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah oh my goodness Ooh. yes yeah arithkiel uh she is weird um mm-hmm. and also super fucking dangerous um, yeah. But she rules an actual underworld, and she steals souls. She's terrifying. Also, she got really upset at Asherin and has not let it go for ever since. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, uh, Asherin's desire to pull back from the mortal realms was utterly unacceptable for her. Um, but the Order came, and that, in many respects, broke the Pantheon in the same way that the High Elves and the Dark Elves later broke apart following almost the same line as their gods thousands of years before. Yeah, and to put to put into perspective how scary the Pale Queen is, um, which is her uh, epithet, she is 
she is literally stealing away souls as much as she can to build a legion of the elven dead to take over heaven essentially yeah totally don't think of necromancy as the province of humanity it absolutely isn't it came from the elves first they've been studying it for not just centuries but millennia the darker arts of dar in particular um yep. and the malekith and Marathi at this point are studying it deeply as well and they will uh, effectively extend their lives permanently because of their understanding of the dark arts of magic and ultimately that means they're using the chaos to yeah. build up themselves and, so, and yeah. they know that yeah so and uh i'm going to very quickly summarize the gods authority late, oh, lady yeah, of pleasure yeah. you know very big on carnal desires and really embracing all the uh pleasurable aspects of life like really delving into that um, totally very we don't have time for it now super interesting stuff about authority versus slanesh how they intersect and how they're different because they're oh, actually i, I could talk about that one yeah. all day but anyway moving on <laughs> uh we've got her sister hakardi uh the mistress mm -hmm. of magic um very very uh the two of them are sisters they both pine for kane and there's actually kind of some hilarious exploits of how they screw with each other um, you then have uh, Cain the Bloody Handed. We already talked about Arith Gal, We already talked about, and then you have the so-called gods of destruction. Uh, you got Estereth, the Lord of Hunger, Hukon um, the Sunderer, um, which uh, they're not as well explored as I would like. Those two in particular, um, Astarioth, I think, the Lord of Fire. Astarioth, yeah, yeah. Um, which he he's a destructive son of a bitch. Uh, he's probably one of the more destructive mathlan lord of oceans and earthquakes i think also yeah, fall totally. under him. and uh mathlan's quite interesting because it's one of the gods that actually bridge over quite a lot because mathlan's um very important over with uh the azure as well because yeah um, and then all, all the uh, piling across the ocean the, the uh um uh, rama aneth rama the savage Ooh, huntress um really interesting god a lot of really good lore on her uh and then uh who's their dad I can't remember their dad's name. The Lord of Destruction. Um, I always forget his name. Um, I've got uh, it. Uh, oh, no, that's Lord of Blades. El no, that's Lord. Uh, yeah, Elenel's Lord of Blades. Honestly, um, I don't have it here in front of me. Yeah, but I'm, he's, I'm, he's not that I'm important. Writing. He's he's literally just uh, what's it called? He's just Kronos, and he basically like uh, he's not that important anymore. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, but anyway, so like it, it's a pretty nasty little pantheon. Um, it like, really is, and it's one that um, uh, puts. Front and center. Oh no, it is Elenil. Eldrazor is the Lord of Blades. I like think Eldrazor, yeah, Eldrazor. Yeah, Eldrazor. Yeah. Oh, but whenever I read, that, I'll never forget it laugh. again. Now, thank you. No, yeah, totally. That's a stunning. It's an Eldrazor. Um, but uh, yeah, these gods are really focused on destruction upon immediate um uh resolution not long term let's do the big game it's all about now 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 and then you look at someone like Aerith kale forced into doing things that she didn't want to building up an enormous army because she has to not because she wants to um and it very much speaks to the dark elf psyche they're doing it because they have to because they're right because yeah. what they're doing has to be done and that allows them to override all of the other aspects of their character. Because in the end, they are elves who might say, wait a minute, this is unacceptable. What I'm doing is, it, this is horrible. The things I'm doing are actually terrible. But they can override that by the expediency, the need, the desire. And elves being elves, they can focus themselves so 
so completely on an individual way of thinking, much like the elder over in 40K. And by focusing so much on that, the rest of it just fades into existence. They are almost pinnacles of what it is to be these individual types of elves. And yeah, it's good times. Yeah, quite Lord Magellan. Yeah. I, I mean, it really wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the last, of course, I forgot is Dracula, the Queen of Vengeance. Um, but it's oh, like, can't forget oh, her. She's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Like All of the, and the, the Dark Elves, I think the thing that Andy keeps saying that is really important is that they're not, it could seem it, especially if you come at it from not having like explored their history up to this point, because it's a reflection it, in many ways, it's kind of a reflection of Malekith where if you come at them as they are now, you go, wow, these guys are like comically evil. Like they're, it's almost ridiculous. Like there's torture and slavery and all this other horrible stuff, but they are really built much more around a concept of survival, no matter yeah. the cost. And I think it's there's a reason they look comically evil. It's because they kind of are. Um, and when they were first created, they really were. They were an adaption of other species that had been built by other writers and then brought into King's Workshop lore. And then they looked at it and went, you know what? This is how I, our version of the Dark Elves were created. And slowly but surely over time, the lore got deepened and deepened. Um, and some of the writers didn't just make them comically evil. They were literally twirling their moustaches as they were <laughs> writing away. Some of the things that they do make no sense at all if you look at them. But with a little bit of extra space and time and other writers who've come in later, you can see it all and go, wait a minute. This is just a hugely tragic, absolutely horrible tale of a broken set of people through the decision of one individual Inarian has utterly, yeah. utterly broken. And you could argue that the next most important character in all of Elvenkind is Malekith, because ultimately he is the one that carries all of Inarian's legacy and flubs it until the very end. Yeah. And so at this point, I think is when Malekith enters what I could think would be called his depression phase. Uh, <laughs> it's a very brutal yeah. depression phase. It really is. Of that he has failed completely and utterly. Everything that he ever wanted has been thrown back in his face and it has gotten very, very, um, it's gotten very ugly. And the, the thing about Malekith is at this point he's hurting and he starts to kind of lash out, um, in some really terrifying ways. Like literally one of the first acts that we see Malekith really do when he finally kind of gets enough out of his own stupor to take action is that the Northmen come down. Uh, the hung primarily mm -hmm. so all these north all these hung are like hey who the hell are these guys that just moved into our turf and they're like oh let's go raid and kill these guys so they come down and they're actually being a problem like they're the dark elves are having a hard time pushing them back because there's just so many of them yep, and yep. then malekith comes outside and malekith is not in a good mood um and he <laughs> obliterates them and there's yeah, a, a note about not only does malekith whoop their ass but he takes a bunch of them prisoner ties them to his chariot and he leaves a line of blood from the gates of Nagarond all the way up to where the, the hung borders are way beyond where the watchtowers will eventually be out. Like there is a genuine blood trail that Malekith creates out of prisoners from Nagarond to there because Nagarond does not give a shit about humans. Um, no, they are they have nothing but contempt for them. Like they are, they are gnats. They are annoying. They're short-lived. They're barbaric. He does not care for them. 
In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll go further. They, I think insects is a marvellous analogy. Um, I had ants in my house at one point. Uh, they just came marching in my house. They're like pain in the arse. Did I just pour boiling water over those fuckers to get rid of them? Yes, I did. They mattered nothing to me. <laughs> Little yeah. fuckers were all... My baby was only at this point two months old. And this... this no, 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 a year old at that point. These ants marching into her uh, cot. Yeah, no, that's getting stopped. They're really annoying. They are destroying things, and they view humans in a similar fashion. Yeah, it's destroying things on the edge of their territory, but the second that they munch away at something they don't like, boil them out, burn them out, blood them out. They literally mean nothing until they realize, wait a minute, they're a natural resource. Yeah. Yeah, they can build. They can, oh, yeah. They can. even though Nagaroth soil is awful, they can make the most of it. <laughs> And, you know, Dark Elves, dark, the thing about Dark Magic, especially, which Malekith goes heavy into at this age. So, mm -hmm. like, he fully embraces Dark Magic. He starts learning how to bind demons. He starts doing everything he does. A, like uh, Andy said, to extend his own life so that he can have his revenge, because right now that's all that matters to him. And B, to further his own power and his own yeah. knowledge. And Malekith, um, the, the thing about Dark Magic is it comes at a price. You do, you do not get dark magic for free. It is not how it works. It is a very corruptive source. But what the Dark Elves figured out and is super fucking sinister is that you don't have to pay the price. Um, if you're very good with magic and very clever, you can make somebody else pay the price. Yeah. So the Dark Elves are flat out. Like a lot of people wonder why the Dark Elves are so ridiculous as far as like uh, sacrifices and like these bloody rituals and stuff. It's because that's how you thwart the cost of dark magic. Yeah, there's um, a variety of different ways you can view that. Um, uh, for those of you who know who your Warhammer lore, perhaps play Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, um, you get the concept there of a spell ingredient. And that spell ingredient is something that you can channel your magic through so that the magic doesn't really affect you. So if the magic goes out of control, the ingredient takes the worst of it and burns up. And you can view Dark Elves basically doing the same thing with people. They're using soul stuff and soul energy to effectively uh, distance themselves from the very worst that dark magic and the gods and whatever else you want to look at bring to the table. But that doesn't mean that Nagaroth itself doesn't then change because of the amount of dark. It's a horrendous corruptive force and it's sinking into everything. A land that was already, let's say, on the brink of being a frozen hellhole becomes, if anything, even worse. It becomes something that demons themselves can probably survive in yeah. without need for anyone to do? summon the fuckers. They could just they come down. Out you. Yeah, yeah indeed. Um, and that's something that the Dark Elves themselves will use because as far as they're concerned, they are also a natural resource. We as uh, humans, particularly given just how strongly we're influenced by the rhetoric and material that comes out for the Empire, where chaos is wrong, destroying the world, it's evil and everything else. For the Dark Elves by this point, chaos is not any of those things. Chaos is a powerful force that they can use and they do. Yeah, they have and to watch for it because it's dangerous. But that's not only dangerous, it's also super powerful for predicting what's coming in the future. Mm. It's um, it's super powerful. In fact, just cut it down to it's super powerful and Dark Elves are super powerful in turn because of it. Yeah. And uh, to answer like some questions I see in chat of like, well, that doesn't if that kind of makes sense, but this doesn't explain some of their darker actions. You have to keep in mind that dark magic is having an impact on them. It's twisting yeah. them even further. It's driving them to further depths. 
And I, I think I'd also say as well that um, it's very easy to place a human morality on people that are not human. They don't see the things that you see as wrong as wrong. Yep, they just don't. They, they don't see it as wrong. They don't see it as depravity. They see it as a part of their existence. They would see completely different things as depravity. And if you're looking for a way to try and build that up, I, uh, I actually recommend looking at a role-play game of all things. Vampire the Masquerade lets you be a bad guy, a vampire. And in there, it's got rules for how you can be a bad guy, but also very strict, real morals that guide your soul and make you think you're the good guy. Even if you are doing horrendous, sadistic, terrible things, you think you're the good guy. And the same thing here. The Dark Elves are not evil in that they don't think they're evil. They still think they're the good guys in the right, mm. doing the right things. And that's something you need to try and get your head around. Um, it's very easy to go comedic bad guys and just leave it at that. But to do so is to it's, it's almost a disservice to what is a really fascinating society that's utterly horrific to our perspectives and awful, but nevertheless fascinating. Yeah. So uh, at this point, Malika's life just skipping ahead, especially because we're slow. Uh, we're coming up on time here in a little bit, but uh, we got to end eventually. Yeah. So Malekith, um Pulls off what I can I personally consider his magnum opus, which is the War of the Beard. Um, Malekith oh. knows the dwarves better than anyone. He's dwarf friend. He was best friends with High King Sorry Whitebeard. He literally built that alliance, so he knows the dwarves. He knows what the dwarves value, and horribly, horribly, he see he in this depression, this twisted darkness. The same way he views kind of chaos and humans, he starts to look at dwarfs the same way, where he looks at them as a resource and a way yep. at pawns and realizes that he can use the dwarfs to hurt the high elves like the high elves hurt him. Yep. Um, and he does. He pulls off a literal master plan of assassinations and ambushes and makes it look like the high elves did it. And he knows very smugly in his citadel that both the elves and the dwarves are too stubborn and too arrogant respectively to figure to find a peaceful resolution and that's exactly what happens um yep. it goes off like a master stroke especially it didn't help that the high elves and uh once again some irony after Kalidor, they were so scared after what happened with Malekith, and they were very vulnerable that they're like okay well Kalidor was a really cool king so let's make his son king even though they should have known better. <laughs> yeah, they should have, shouldn't they? Uh, so we get Calder the second, the worst Phoenix King. He is he is truly awful. Go read him up if you fancy. Um, and I think that this, I, I couldn't agree more. This entire period um, shows that for all Amalekith has completely changed, he's still that same brilliant strategist. He's still an extraordinarily capable leader. But what he has um, in terms of his morals is a completely different framework. The Malekith that he was when he was best pals with Snorri would never have done this. It would yeah. never have even occurred to him. But he has lost access to that entire part of the Mandela. He has lost um, Ajarin in his life. He no longer has the capability to judge what is right and what is wrong in the same way. The judgment of Ajarin has gone. He has denied it. He is only accepting those darker roots. And that has left us with a horrendous war that devastates two peoples completely and is 
to the Dark Elves' uh, benefit, really. It changes the fabric of the old world entirely. The High Elves end up um, mm. withdrawing from their colony. Funny enough, to humanity's benefit, too. <laughs> in, in, in many respects, this is what allows humanity to rise in the old world, because the Elves that had completely dominated all of the Lowlands almost entirely withdraw, leaving a couple of spots here or there of individuals who refuse to go. And this massively changes the old world, it massively changes the dwarves, it massively changes Ulthwin, yet still when good old Malekith does his attempts to try and take the place, he doesn't quite manage it. Yeah, well, and that it, it's kind of the sad thing of that Malekith does all of this just to give himself an opportunity to try and take Ulthwan back. Yeah, like all of it. It wasn't even like, it wasn't even really, he didn't care how the War of the Beard went. It was just a distraction. Like That's exactly what it was. Yeah, he did not give a damn. Like, it, if anything, it probably worked a lot better than he had hoped. Because as as good as his plan was, it was Kaldor II's fault that it went way overboard and turned as yeah. bitter as it did. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, it should never have turned out the way that it did. Yeah, and uh, this, of course, then leads to the Wood Elf incident, where uh, Ulthwan realizes they're being invaded by Malekith after they've poured a ton of resources into a war against the dwarves, and um, the, I think it's Caradryl, calls everybody home. Uh, Calder II dies, and he says, we're being invaded, we don't have enough people, come home. We need everybody yeah. to come home. And the colonies say, that is not our problem. The Dark Elves are not our thing. Like, we don't we're we're elves it's this, your war yeah this whole split thing this is your problem why should we have to abandon our homes of course unfortunately for them it doesn't work out that easily because the dwarfs are like not done <laughs> um and the dwarfs destroy many of the colonies which leads to Athaloran in many ways though Athaloran itself calls many of the elves to it because it is suffering under the dwarfs um and calls them home but we don't have time for that um uh, no, so it's, well, it's, it's that's a whole extra stream yeah of yeah because so it's Malekith, a big war like you said malekith invades a big skip but malekith invades three more times uh he invades ultimate three more times and he loses but it's important to note that he doesn't like get kicked out um the yeah, dark I mean, Elf, it's like a thousand years along one of his invasions it's not a short set of wars this yeah, and it, it's worth uh, it's worth noting that Malekith like actually rebuilds the fortress of Anlek multiple times because yeah. he is he wants his father's seat so bad um, because that's where he thinks he can at least set up enough of a it, it's very personal to him and there's also some really interesting things that happen during this period like Malekith goes to the shrine of Cain and he actually faces down the Widowmaker. And what's interesting is unlike his father, because the, the Widowmaker is a really fucking crazy weapon, and it takes the shape of what is most appealing to those who see it. Um, and Malekith sees a scepter, um, a scepter of rulership, not not a sword, but uh, something that Cain is trying to lure him in with. You can be king. You can be all you want to be. And Malekith resists, which is insane. I think it says a lot to his character that he resists, but I think um, you can also argue that he resisted, and arguably maybe the way he resisted Adjuran, he's reached a point yeah. in his life where the gods fuck him. Yeah, um, and I think it's his future. I think it says kind of deliberately that Malekith looks at it and goes, "I, you know, I won't be your puppet." Like yeah, I, exactly. I know, and Malekith is super interesting because he resents the gods. I, he does not like any of them. Like Cain, Malekith pays such lip service to Cain, it's not even funny. Where he goes so far as to tell the cult of Cain, oh yeah, I am uh, Cain incarnate. 
I am the yep. incarnate of Kane, and y'all y'all work for me. And Hellebron knows he's bullshitting. She yep. knows he is completely full of crap, but politically she can't move against him, and he also kind of lets them do what they want, so she ignores it. Um, like, you know, most people would argue uh, in the modern lore, Talaris Dreadbringer is much more accurately the voice. Like, he can hear Kane's voice, literally. Um, and he's off doing killing people. But like Malekith, for him, it's just politics. He doesn't give a fuck about the gods. Yeah, quite. The the, the rise of Cain as the primary deity of the Dark Elves um, comes from the, the period when there was no other gods for the Dark Elves. It was just Cain yeah. um, when it was first written. And that the DNA of that has run all the way through to the modern version where there may be a whole pantheon of gods there for them to be uh, worshipping and some of them more important than Cain but because Cain didn't exist beforehand none of the literature refers to any of those gods all of the characters and the various units refer to just Cain so Cain comes up again and again and again and again and is given an enormous amount of prominence um, to the point that it's no longer sensible to a degree yeah in and reality the other gods look a bit bleh. yeah in reality it, it would probably be like each of the dark elf cities has a god that they're a little bigger on um as opposed to like Cain being big in all of them he would probably just be big in harganeth um yeah, almost but, certainly but yeah. but we have what we have because of the way it was created. yeah we, we have to we have to work with it uh but yeah. but there's interesting things to explore there but like you know, malekith would do the same with all the cults he would literally just say yeah no i'm your I'm yeah, I'm big for your God because I'm important. And politically you will support that. Um, another thing we need to go in with. Uh, so, so anyway, so Malekith three invasions, um, they ultimately they're drag out fights. Um, like are. he holds on to parts of Ulthuan, Nagareth and a lot of Northern Krace, um, for, Tyr uh, for a long time. Like the, yeah. I, it's, it, it's not until Tethlis the Slayer that they push him out. Um, yeah, big and, time. Uh, it's worth saying that a lot of people always imagine Ulthuin as being the high mm -hmm. elf land, but for a significant period of its time, it's split 50 50 yeah. almost between the dark elves and the high elves. It's not the land of the high elves, it's the land of the elves, half of which is ruled by dark elves for a massive period of its uh history. Yeah, and uh, so it's like a drag out fight, and it eventually it builds up to the great war. And this is a very big moment for Malekith when he finally takes he takes advantage of everything going on with the Everchosen. So Asvar Kul rises up, and the thing about Everchosens that I think a lot of people don't understand just because of the, the scope of Warhammer tends to be on the old world, and Everchosen, he physically can only be in one place. But when yeah. an Everchosen rises up, chaos goes crazy. It is a global event when an Everchosen happens. And so the Hung and many other tribes full on are ready to invade Nagaroth. And Malekith is able to get them to say, he's able to get them to say, hey, instead of coming after my lands, which don't have many resources and it's not going to be a fun fight and whatever, why don't we go? Why don't he we go? Up, he sent up Morathi. He, she converted yeah. most of them. Yeah. Um, Morathi is able Marathi. to manipulate them. Yeah. Super easily. Yeah. <laughs> and she does this many times. Like she yeah. literally does this twice that I can think of of um like being like oh yeah no come work for us like look at all these sexy ladies we got come fight for us and, the rest, and then the hunger like yeah okay yeah. <laughs> yeah so um they join up with the dark elves so malekith invades ulthuan and this time it's not just the dark elves it's warriors of chaos beastmen mm -hmm. demons like it is a terrifying army and the high elves are overwhelmed um and it's ugly and he has nakari with him he literally binds the demon that Yep. dealt the death it's blow like to the his ultimate insult yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. He, he Nakari fucking hates Malak. Nakari hates mm-hmm. the the line of an Aryan. He's tried yep, to wipe yep. it out multiple times. And to to Nakari's credit, he's been mostly successful. There's only like four of them left. Um, <laughs> which it was a pretty prolific line. But uh, he binds Nakari and he literally uses him as a bloodhound, which Nakari fucking hates. Like Malaketh goes out of his way to embarrass Nakari on a regular basis and treat him like a dog. But Nakari is killed by Teclas uh, after he tries to hunt down Tyrion. And then we finally get the Battle of Finneval Plain, uh, where Malekith, by all rights, should have won <laughs> again. But he literally, uh, essentially a god slaps him down again. But this time it's Lilaith. Um, Malekith is wrestling with Teclas. The two of them are having this epic magic duel. And a lot of people think that like, oh, Teclas is just a better wizard. No, he's not. Um, Teclas is a very powerful wizard, but he is thousands and thousands and thousands of years younger than Malekith. The only reason he can go toe-to-toe with Malekith is he, the curse of Cain. The way it affects him is he's physically very frail, but his magic is nuts. And the other reason is that he is wielding some of the wildest <laughs> fucking stuff the lith itself. Yeah, he has the staff of a god that yeah. gives him one spell that he can just juice. And that's what he does. He literally charges up and he fires like a fucking nuclear bomb at Malekith. And it kills Malekith's dragon and it should have killed Malekith. But Malekith, like Andy said, played the escape card. (laughs) (laughs) Because once again, he comes to a pivotal moment of will he die or will he flee? And he throws himself into the realm of chaos, which granted kind of a risky escape plan. Um, but I, it's also worth noting that this was used particularly back in the older ones. It was used largely as a demonstration of what the escape card did in the first Warhammer Magic box set. Um, but it was also a period where they decided that they would um, actively change the Witch King's character from being this ravening lunatic <laughs> who was out of control, who was who was loosely without any real structure anymore, utterly obsessed with his destruction of um, Ulthuan and taking control of it. And he came back a calculating, far more capable and at one with himself person, arguably what would then become the Eternity King at a later date. It was the first step towards that part of his evolution as a character. Um, And it took whatever happened in the realms of chaos, where you could argue he was chased by demons. He had great revelations. Who knows what he did? Um, he could have gone off to 40k for all we know. Um, <laughs> he he certainly he certainly saw something, um, yeah. and that loosely changed him. And that in later editions wasn't talked about as much, but it was certainly in the DNA of the stories that were told later. Yeah, so Malkith vanishes for a hundred years. Um, and every I, a lot of people pr- think he's dead, but his most like uh, his most loyal servants don't, and Marathi refuses refuses to believe he could possibly die. Mm-hmm. Um, and she uh, goes through a whole bunch of shit, but she eventually figures out he's going to come back, and she waits for him. Sure enough, he turns up. He's not in good shape. Um, ment- okay. mentally, physically, and emotionally, being in the realm of chaos is really bad for you. <laughs> it's not a good place. Plus, uh, we it's very heavily implied that Nakari was hunting him the entire time because Nakari was very upset about the whole bloodhound thing uh, and wanted his revenge. And Malakit somehow got away from him and even broke off one of his horns and brought it with him, uh, which is hilarious. But um, Malakit spent. It's worth noting that um, when Malekith was away in the realms of chaos, um, from his perspective, it was literally an eternity. So he's no longer he's no longer a six thousand year or seven thousand year old elf. 
he is arguably millennia beyond that old in terms of his overall sensation of experience. Um, he's arguably, by this point, the oldest character in the Warhammer world. Yeah. Fucky Wucky. Beyond uh, demons. Chaos beyond stuff. demons that are eternal. Yeah. yeah, he and when he gets back, he is genuinely completely different. Like he spends three years healing because he's insane. But once and Morathy, once again, full potions thing, she nurses him back, back to health. And uh, he, when he emerges, he is the finale Malekith. Um, he is very cold and calculating, and he is significantly less interested in revenge and more about victory. Um, it's not, it's not a personal vendetta anymore. It's more of a, he, I think he views it more as a resolution that needs to occur because he's also seen chaos. Like he literally faces down in some ways, the dark gods sees them, sees horrible things. And he knows what chaos is, which is a very rare thing. Characters get to experience. Yep. And he's, he's, he's just different now. Um, and his perspective on everything is different. But interestingly, the way he's written is not so different. Over the course of the next 200 years, he doesn't actually do things that differently. He doesn't approach things that differently. It's almost like the writers kind of forgot that he went through this great change, but then retract back on it and go, no, what? Actually, no, he did. And then we hit the end times. Yeah, but what's interesting, in 8th edition, Malekith doesn't really do anything no, after he comes back. It's like, really he, weird. Yeah, he blows up. To his credit, he completely wipes out Tor Elasor, which is a pretty serious accomplishment. Um, but other but then, than that, if you consider some of the previous cities he'd blown up in the past, it's it's not that major. Yeah, but it's and, and granted, you can hand wave it of his he's plotting. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, almost two hundred years to an elf. Yeah, and uh, the end times happens, and the end times <laughs> is very controversial. This this is something I have to we have to talk with Andy about live on stream because there is a lot of people hate the end times. Yep, I hate the end times. Andy yep. hates the end times. <laughs> I do, um, but. Not everything that happened at the end times was completely illogical. A lot of that had been set up in Warhammer Fantasy's bones. Yes. Um, and Malekith is one of those things. And that's a hard truth for a lot of us to swallow because of the way it was written. Um, I agree. And for me personally, like I, I will tell you, the first time I talked to Andy about Malekith and we kind of brought up the Eternity King, I did not like what he had to say on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> but... But over the course of our conversations, I have come to very much like what he has to say on the subject, in which that I would like to give Andy the floor now to explain the idea behind what Malekith is supposed to be when the end times hits. Okay, well, there's lots of different angles we could take here, but let's keep it simple given the hour. Because um, we have been doing this for, what, about three hours now? Yeah, we um, need to wrap up soon. <laughs> yeah, so we need to wrap up at some point. Um, but we've been hinting at it throughout the course of the stream, and that's that Malekith um, was as far as the basic process of being king, Phoenix King, in that he went in, he came out. You could argue he didn't pass through. You could argue that he failed the judgment of Azurin. You could argue that he himself refused Azurin. There's lots of things you can argue. But he went in, he came out, and all the other ones didn't do it right. So there's some arguments. But ultimately, his job was to get over himself. His job was to realize he was wrong. His job was from the point when he started off right at the beginning and Ajaran said, this is what you have to be. And Malekith said no, and then refused it. He had to take that on board, pass through the flame again and accept what he was and effectively for the first time in his life, submit. 
And by doing so, he could bind the elves back together and accept that Azurin as the judge at the very top, he who has the bifurcated mask, white on one side, black on the other, he who represents the entire mandala, not just one side as the Azure pretended, not the other side as the Dark Elves pretended, but the entire mandala of what it was to be an elf. He had to be the representation. It's a long play story that starts with him first passing through that flame and failing to realize what he had to be that was eventually paid off at the end. Now, do I like the way that they did that? My perspective, no. <laughs> I no. not only didn't like the way they rushed it, I didn't like the way the wood elves went, yeah, sure, you're my king. Not a problem. Screw that. They're so different to what they used to be. That would not be an easy, hey, here comes our king. Yeah, no. Um, do I like a large part of it? No, but I do like that at the core, there was a real attempt to get a strong idea of what Malekith was, should have been, could have been, and ultimately at the heart of it, what the Curse of Cain represented. Do I like uh, what Tyrion became? No, not really. Do I like what Teclis came out of this? No, not really. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, yeah it was definitely... And the, I think the important thing to walk away from, because... We'll, we'll, and for those in chat, because I think you'll enjoy this, we will eventually do a shit on the end time stream because it'll be fun. Um, it will, um, because uh, we, there's a lot of good in there. Yeah, uh, like we'll talk about the fun bits, the <laughs> dumb bits, and have a good yeah. time with it. But um, I, I think the thing for, um, uh, I think the thing for Malakith that's really important that I'd I'd like Andy to expand on a little bit further. Actually, before I go into my thing, is um, what would you say is the way the Curse of Cain inhabits? revealed itself within Malekith like what aspect did it take if you had to pick something if I had to pin it down in one word pride that's mm. probably not the answer you were looking for what is it you were looking for because you clearly have something you're looking for there so I'll expand on that um, because pride is at the core of all of his failures you know he um, he, he refused the god arguably yeah. Yeah, and uh, the thing about uh, Malekith that I love a lot about him um, is that, and I think it ties very heavily into the Eternity King, is that Malekith, in essence, was kind of destined to be, like, the ultimate elf. Yeah. Um, uh, and even, like, better than his father in a lot of ways, because yeah. his father was very much ruled by grief. And his father yeah. was also forged out of desperation as opposed yeah. to anything else. Um, and Malekith had a little bit of a luxury to avoid that, but it kind of blew up in his face um, in that without the desperation, he faltered. Um, and I think the thing that really strikes me about him is that one of the things I did like about the end times, though, uh, and the Eternity King plot, though, once again, they didn't have nearly enough time to develop it truly, was that when he finally becomes the Eternity King, he is so marred by the journey he took to become the eternity king that like he acknowledges that there are things he doesn't need to do anymore and there are things that he needs to discard because he needs to be balanced but it is like a black pit on his soul can you bring up the previous comics i'd like to say a little yes. thing on that and also say the one thing that i think they should have done um so was he wrong though and i think the answer is no um uh, in that his refusal of the gods wasn't necessarily wrong. What was wrong was his refusal of what it was to be an elf. You could argue that the gods said you have to be this, and he completely denied that god and thus denied half of what it was to be an elf in general. So that would make him wrong, arguably. 
Um, and I was going to say one last thing. To make him a true Phoenix King, if they wanted to really pay that story off well, he should have been reborn when he came out of that flame. He should have been reborn. The whole point of Randy, the Phoenix... They would have had to make is, another model. <laughs> well, yes, they would have. Yeah. And goddamn right, they should have. Because yeah. he should have been reborn. Because that was the point when he changed. He actually became something new. He was reborn. That's the whole point of Azurin. The rebirth from the corrupt, broken old version into this completely new version. The ashes burned away, and he should have walked out resplendent, um, being the uh, Eternity King, being, in truth, not the Eternity King, just simply the Phoenix King. Yeah. That's what he should have been. He should have come out as a Phoenix King. The great holy phoenixes of Azurin themselves should have tumbled out of that flame. There should have been a great call, and elves across the world would have known their king had finally come. It took thousands of years to get there. They broke the world themselves. But finally, in these last moments, <laughs> as the last battle comes, the king strides again. And that would have been great. Yeah. And, yeah, they <laughs> they wanted to do that. Um, there, there are there are threads of it, but they just it just didn't stick the landing. It in didn't a lot quite of ways. stick the landing. Yeah, totally. But um, and, yeah, and yeah. for anyone out there that like is like just for funsies or like just thinking of mental exercises, there's a lot of fun to be explored there. Of like, and the end times kind of tries to touch on it. Of like, yeah, that would have been Malekith. He would have been the the new Phoenix King, and kind of in a ways had earned it at that point. Yeah. But he would have very much been haunted about all the things he'd done. Yes. There would have been elf factions that, although we're not like Tyrion crazy, um, like insane like Tyrion was, they would have looked at him and said, no, like and that's, absolutely not. That's why he could have become the Phoenix King though, because he could have felt guilt. He yeah. would have realized that what he'd done was wrong. And it wasn't until he could accept that he was wrong, that he could get over his pride that he could become the true king that he was supposed to be. He had to reach the point where he could go, I am wrong. And that would have made, if anything, a far better king, the king who no longer wanted to be king because he realized how flawed he was to his very core. And that is why he was finally in a position where he could properly rule. But it's a beautiful potential story, but as yeah. we said, it kind of... Uh, yeah, out at the end. yeah, and like those threads are there. Like I, I know people are like, oh no, Tyrion should have been king, but it's like Tyrion would have literally just been an Aryan again. Yeah, Tyrion would have been a king driven by desperation who goes mad due to grief and does some and loses himself to it. That yeah. is that is Tyrion's story. Is that he is a he is a literal mirror of an Aryan, which kind of in some ways makes an interesting fight between him and Malekith, and that Malekith literally has to fight his father. Yeah, and I think ultimately what should have happened with Tyrion was that he was killed in the most ultimately awesome way, um, much like uh, much like Anarion was. He should have gone out trying to save the world. Yeah. Um, that should have been his last charge, his last stand, and his brother should have been looking on, weeping in horror at what his brother was doing. And that would have been awesome. Um, yeah. It would have made a great story, uh, you, and you could have seen his ah. you, didn't, you didn't like him getting shot in the back? <laughs> And then, and then being resurrected later, and they're like, "Oh yeah, no, all the Kane stuff. It's fine. You're you're light now. Don't worry about it." <laughs> Did I like that? Let's say it wasn't my preferred part of the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Totally. Um, so, uh, Mr. Jim, I think you do bring up an interesting point, but I, I think the thing is that it's important to understand that. Malekith would need to be the ultimate embodiment of understanding the flaws of the elves and acknowledging them and having to face them. 
Whereas a yeah. lot of the elves, there are characters that you look at, you go, oh, well, this character doesn't have any problems. Like this character's awesome. So they should be king. But the point is that they haven't gone through those sufferings and they're in a sense underdeveloped. Like look at looking at like they're the thing about elves that I think is really important is a lot of the best elf characters are characters that go through a profound tragedy or a profound experience that ends up greatly affecting them and yeah. turning them into someone else and they go okay i understand what my place is now yeah he would have been um not the the best choice as far as everyone was concerned but the best choice for the day um he yeah, was the one who totally could have led into the end times it's totally valid to hate malekith as the yeah. king like it's totally valid to look at his story and to go no the atrocities were too great i hate him that's and that why it's such a good choice in many yeah. respects. It's because he's such a divisive figure and would be for his own people too. Um, uh, the, the fact that he himself would agree with you, that yeah. is what would make him such a great figure in that place. If he was someone that disagreed with you and thought, no, I'm the best king, I can do this, I'm better, he would have learned nothing. He would not be the potential character that he could have been. That's why I like him as the Eternity King. I hate the name, but I like him as the <laughs> Phoenix King. Um, yeah. It's the Ever Queen and the Eternity. Well, they, they were like, um, we, we, we've, got, we've got to make it feel more special for some stupid reason. But uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's and and i think that's the thing is a lot of people go you know oh well that doesn't feel like super satisfying it's like well it only doesn't feel satisfying if you're looking at it if good versus evil like yeah the best aspects of warhammer are that it's muddy as fuck yeah. um in real life like a lot of ways and that not everything has a satisfying conclusion yeah. there's often I would argue it's super satisfying what wasn't satisfying was the landing yeah. Um, because you didn't pin the lap because the landing wasn't pinned because everything that it could have been wasn't explained you're just left with a yeah you know what i like malekith he's the king now oh he rules all the elves why does he rule why are they all accept it because they are um and uh you know he's a bit bad yeah whatever the end yeah uh, well, and th there was so there was a lot of weird decisions to try and justify it as far as like oh no Ashurin always wanted him to be king and he was murdering the phoenix kings and it's like that that's stupid <laughs> that doesn't make sense um like oh what happened to malika's wife i yeah oh so, it's sorry. sad yeah real real quick so this happened before um malekith uh, battle of Fenival plane um yeah. this happens ooh, this happens about three thousand ish years before that um, but it's so it's after Malekith has gone to Nagaroth. It's after the War of the Beard, um, a ways after that. So Alisara is one of the big, awesome wizards in Athaloran. She's not the greatest one. That would probably be Ariel Nyeth the Prophetess, but she's up there. Um, and she uh, she learns <laughs> about what's happened to Malekith and she starts feeling really, really bad because she still loves him. Like she's always loved him. She didn't leave yep. because she didn't love him. She left because she was scared. And prophecy got the better of her. And then she heard the call of Athel Lauren and she answered it. Um, because Athel Lauren, it's it's a little creepy, but it kind of compelled a lot of the elves to come to it because of a bargain that an old Everqueen made. But um, in any event, um, she comes to the decision that she wants to go back to Malekith's side. Um, she she still loves him and she hopes she's she learns about what he's doing and she's heartbroken and she goes, I, I need to go be with my husband. Like I need to try and bring him back to the man I knew instead of the man he is. Um, I bet there's still good in him. And the problem is, is that she's not the only one that believes that. Marathi agrees. <laughs> um, and Marathi see, finds out about Elisara's coming back because Elisara like sends out 
Ariel is like, ah, I don't want you to leave because you're my sister. And she says, no, I have to go. So they send a little secret missive to Malekith. And Malekith's like, all right, I'll send a secret ship to pick you up. Because he he loves her. He wants her to come back. And uh, Morathi finds out. Because Marathi always knows what's going on with her son. And so she sets up a fairly elaborate ploy and tricks a uh, disgraced high elf noble to go assassinate Elisara. Yep. And um, Elisara dies uh, because Marathi wants Malekith to be ruthless. She wants him to be what he needs to be in order for them to succeed. And she fears that if Elisara returns, that it will soften Malekith and that he will become kind of complacent. Um, that he might care more about living a good life with Elisara and less focused on becoming the Phoenix King. Yeah, you can view this as basically a war between two seers. You've got the wife on one side and the mother on the other, both of whom have seen a future where Malekith could be something terrible or something good, and both of whom are playing a bunch of cards to try and turn them into the Malekith that they want, and Marathi wins. Yeah, so Elisara dies, though there is, um, for anyone that's like, wow, that fucking sucks, I hate Mar uh, uh, Marathi, she does kind of get her just desserts of yeah. that Malekith finds out <laughs> that his mother killed Elisara, and he's pissed he he leaves marathi to die um yeah. which is actually kind of surprising for him he finds out that ariel and orion have found out who is responsible so they come and lay siege to um tower of grand they lay siege to grand and marathi says malekith there are two demigods or gods that are trying to kill me please come help and malekith nah. Malekith not only says no, he sends out an edict forbidding anyone else to go help her. <laughs> so he's like, nope. you, you On your it. head, be it. Yeah, you dug this grave, you can fucking lie in it, mom. Um, yeah, totally. Luckily for Marathi, she does not die because she convinces Ariel to let her go in exchange for dark magic uh, knowledge, which has a profound impact on many futures. But uh, anyway, yeah, so that's what happens to her. She dies and it's genuinely sad. Malekith mourns her. He does. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that speaks a lot to Mar Malekith's character as well. But um, I, I, yes, this is where Marathi, again, much as we mentioned earlier in the stream, she plays her cards very carefully. And no matter how terrible her actions may be, she believes they're justified to ensure that she gets the best for her son. And she believes this is the best for her son. Andy, um, I told you. I told you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did come. Um, so uh, I'm going to um, I'm going to address this one and say that it very much was a part of the lore. Um, it was uh, not just a part of the lore, as in was it hinted at here or there. It it was not just hinted at. It was very much part and parcel of what the case was, and that was to try and show that the elves aren't human. The concept of incest doesn't really necessarily mean the same to them as it does to us. They don't have the same genetic problems mm. that humanity yeah. have. If they ha they married their brother and they had a child, there wouldn't be genetic issues. They don't have the same sense of morals as we do. But as consumers and as humans, we have those morals. And when we look at it as a bunch of consumers, we get often horrified, particularly given that Games Workshop are touting these products to children often. That is an unacceptable <laughs> yeah. line, so it gets pretty much shoved under the carpet while simultaneously everyone knows, yeah, that's what pretty much is behind the scenes, and that's often always what it has been. It's one of the ways that Marathi has always manipulated uh, her son. And that continued on to when he was slapped in the armor for a variety of different reasons, because it's far more than just the simple ha 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 sex, sex, sex. Um, you've just got to remember, these are elves with a different moral compass and a completely different physiological compass to the one that we have as humans. 
but we are reading and writing this as humans um, with our own sense of moral outrage getting flung in here. So you'll never find that probably ever turning up again. Um, indeed, you will often find them probably not just brushing it under the carpet, but saying that definitely never happened. Um, I, I take a rel relatively sanguine view. I, I think it's a good way potentially of showing how they're different for adult media. Yeah. Um, I, and this isn't mm. necessarily adult media. Yeah, I would I would say that it's fair to assume there were probably relations between them. Um, you could, but you could very much argue that after Malekith gets put in the armor, he literally can't feel pleasure anymore, so he stops caring, <laughs> and that ends. That would be a fair interpretation, I think, of events. Um, to wrap up, just the last few things: uh, the situation between Snorri Whitebeard and Malekith. Yes, that is dramatic. Uh, Malekith's breaking of his oath to Snorri literally breaks reality a little bit because it brings snorri back from death um snorri becomes he becomes an ancestor god in yeah, the yes. full god sense he becomes the god of White vengeance dwarf. he he literally is the ancestor god of vengeance um and he becomes the white dwarf and oh, he's Rizzo. he literally roams around avenging oaths um as far as like what he does he's a spirit of vengeance now a lot of people have wondered why didn't he go after malekith um, I would suggest that I don't think Snorri was as much himself as he is more a god at that point. He's more of a yeah. representation of an idea. Almost a spirit rather than a dwarf. Yeah, that being said, um, yeah. I do think if the End Times had had the time to develop Malekith's story, I do think there should have been a very interesting confrontation between the two of them when Malekith returns to the old world. Yeah. Now, if I was writing, I'd have had um, uh, him kill Malekith and thus be potentially responsible for the end of the Warhammer world. Um, that would have been a Malachi. very dwarf thing to do. Yeah, it would have been um, the ultimate. It, it would have been the ultimate figure of potential savior of the Warhammer world, Malekith. Everyone would have considered him to be the last option to be any use at all. But him forging the most unlikely alliances, and then Grombrindle chopping his fucking head off. Honestly, honestly, if the way that you know the whole scene with Manfred and Gelt and stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If that instead had happened, if it had been Malekith con helping contain mm -hmm. the Chaos Portal and then Snorri's like, an oath is an oath, and he kills him, that would have been yeah. fucking insane. It would have been insane. In a good and, way. And, in a great and, way. Yeah, and it would have been insane in a way that made sense for the long lore that they had already established between the pair of them. And it would have also made sense for just bringing the fucking white dwarf front and center in it, because that's just kind of fucking cool. Yeah, obviously, I uh, part of the question that was asked. Obviously, I don't think me and Andy are fans of the way they handled Grombardol in the end times, where he saves Malekith and then just fucks off. Um, yeah, I don't, it, he it, wouldn't it, have done that. Nah, <laughs> that's a no, human thing to do, not a dwarf. It's thing a to really do. human thing to do, and I think that's. Um, I think if I was going to sum up all of the issues that I have with the end times, it is that they never really thought of them as real individuals that were living and breathing inside a desperate desperate situation what they thought of them was was a bunch of names that they had to somehow sort through kill and keep a few for the next step and that was a massive un underserving of what was a great setting the end times were not necessarily the wrong choice for games workshop clearly it was the right choice for games workshop yeah but i, I don't agree. think it was i don't think it was uh implemented it didn't have to be written way. like that <laughs> it didn't yeah, and granted, there's there's a lot there of like they were, I think, far more concerned with setting up for Age of Sigmar than they were with Ending Fantasy, which informed a lot of poor decisions. And they also were like, well, we don't want to make new minis because that costs yeah. money, so we're not going to give these characters proper ends. But whatever. Um, uh, last few things, uh, Bellacor. What do I think about Gromadol being in Nagaroth? I think it's fantastic. 
I, I think the whole point of his campaign being you go after Malekith, perfect. Yeah, Literally I perfect. think that's great. That's fine. Love it. Um, any other last second questions, people? We are literally coming up to the very last end. Uh, I do want to take a moment to say if this conversation is, I'm going to do some, uh, what do you call it? Peddling? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I do want to say that if this is all sounded super interesting, if you're like, wow, this is super awesome. I've loved this discussion. This is really cool. This has been a lot of fun. And you really have enjoyed a lot of the chat about elves. One of the things I cannot recommend highly enough is goofy as it may sound i'm not being paid for this i want to make that clear i'm not being paid for it i'm not a part of it i'm not i am paying for it <laughs> to be as good as it can be um uh, is Lawhammer. please for the love of god check out Lawhammer. watch the series start on the first episode and just go through it um andy is doing an insane job of kind of expanding the lore and exploring it in a way that allows it to you to see play by play what's happening and it's insanely incredible. Uh, Alamineweth really allows you to explore the Larlorn elves, which I the way attached Andy... to Malekith, and has in fact met him, but I haven't told you that. Uh, spoilers! <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> the way Andy handles it is the Larlorn elves are the closest thing there are to the true elves, and it's fascinating. And it it gives them a thing to do. They are not just wood elves that are not in Athalorn, which doesn't make sense. It literally wouldn't make any fucking sense if that's what they were. Because the whole point of Athel Lauren and the Wood Elves is Athel Lauren. Mm -hmm. That's what matters. So for there to be Wood Elves outside of Athel Lauren is they super weird. Yeah, they <laughs> um, have to exist for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. So the the idea is that the the, the idea that Andy really takes like it's introduced in Wolfrup, but Andy really takes it to a whole nother level is that they are the true elves. Um, as close to what's left of the true elves. Now they have a fuck ton of problems. Um, <laughs> and they have many of the flaws that the original uh, elves did, um, but it's phenomenal. Um, <laughs> Big style. Yeah, um, actually, uh, like I just finished an episode about Gerhardt and Alamenowith that had that was very funny in a lot of ways. But it's like, man, she, uh, which she's played by uh, Andy's wife Lindsay Law, and she does an insanely good job. We have a Lord Beard's episode about playing elves with her because she she does such a perfect job of being a character that I love and also just want to smack, <laughs> which is like, that's what an elf is, is that you should love and hate them. Because I think you, like, I think you'll enjoy her individual episode because there is a smack moment. Yeah. It's like, they are such asses, um, but they're, it, it's, it's great. It's awesome. But so um, I have a couple of things I'd like to add to that. Um, and that is, Firstly, I completely agree with literally everything that the good old lore master of Zotech says over there. Really? Um, um, and I think you should all watch our game because we play Warhammer a little bit differently to everyone else. And it's it's a big flap. It's at, at Lawhammering, wherever the hell you have. It's critical role in Warhammer. It's critical yeah, yeah. role in Warhammer. That's pretty much what we're aiming for. Um, but I'll also add, because I'm almost at the point where I'm going to release it, um, on the elf front... Um, we're running elves a little bit differently to how they're normally run in the roleplay game, where they're often just perceived as humans with pointy ears. Um, and I'm writing a complete set of rules that are just for the elves that are, revolve around all of the gods and the different um, ways that those gods say that the elves should partake of their lives and speak directly to this entire stream. Speak to Anarian, speak to Malekith, and why they are the way they are, why Orion is the way he is, why... Uh, Ariel is the way that she is. Why knife? Why, why all of them are the way they are? And uh, these path rules will be popping up relatively soon, and they'll be dribbling out 
over the course of multiple weeks. And I think for those of you who are big lore fans, you're going to find an awful lot of rather cool, elfy goodness in there that might really get you going. So, yes, that. And on the second one, if you just like chatting about gaming in general, go check out our Rookery streams at Rookery Publications or at Rookery, wherever we're about. You'll find my name in there somewhere. Do come along. There must be links in the chat somewhere yeah, on if, Twitch. If you're on, if you're on Twitch, Nightbot has been posting it all the time. Yeah, and if you're on Nightbot, YouTube, if you're, you rock. If you're in YouTube, it's in the description. Ah, perfect. So, so yeah, you, do drop those, are, those are up. Um, you can we already have a bajillion this. videos you can look through and on all topics. So there might not be anything immediately jumps out the oh, first four or yeah. five. But if you check back to the old ones, there's going to be tons of stuff, including our good friend, Loremaster over here. Yeah. We had a so, good chat over there in the room. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to keep stroking Andy off here of that. The Rookery does amazing interviews with writers, many of which you'll recognize. Uh, writers, artists, map makers, all sorts of people. Um, the one they did yesterday, fucking awesome um i got to submit some good questions like they did a whole episode uh what's uh i forget his name off the top of my head um uh that was uh, adrian tchaikovsky wasn't it yes yes um tchaikovsky yeah uh, uh such a fucking i hate how badass his last name is i wish my last name was that <laughs> badass um but um he did they did a kind of episode featuring around writing in human species and mm -hmm. if you are like man i would really like to write lizardmen better or understand lizardmen better holy shit does he like kill that question um he does, I, doesn't he? yeah like he a I, i've i'm aware of his novels i've read some of his novels and he like knows his shit um and uh he does some awesome answers like he talks about like dealing with immortality and like all these other things so if you're ever like i want to play an elf but i don't want to because like the biggest bitch that I have with Warhammer Fantasy, and I think Andy does too, that it suffers from, is people like to forget that elves and dwarves are not humans. Um, they really are, bugs me. They are they are completely separate species that are insanely alien to us. They are not us. Like the closest thing to us are halflings, and they're pretty far removed as well. Um, they they're they're not like us. They're not remotely related to us. The old ones did not use the same sugar spice mm -hmm. and everything nice to make them as they did us um, yep. for very deliberate reasons. Like I would say the elves, it really and truly the elves are as alien to us as the lizardmen are in a lot of ways. It's just not as physically obvious because they're yeah. also mammals. <laughs> yeah, you, you easily forget it because you look at them. You're like, oh, look at them. They're pretty like pretty humans. Hell, if, if you're like, I want to, but they look the same. No, they don't. Go look at sixth edition black and white art to see like amazing elf art. They elves totally. do not. They have crazy scary eyes and they're weirdly slender and like anyway. Um, last little. Totally. Uh, I'm just checking for any last second questions. Um, there's a couple posted over in Discord. Let's see if there's any obvious that worth. Uh, out. Oh yeah yeah yeah. No no. Uh, if if they're so... not super relevant, you can just skip them. There yeah, that's what, exactly <laughs> what I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah. We we uh, love favorite, you, Professor Pone. We favorite Malakoff moment. Uh, favorite, my favorite Malakoff moment um, is a part that wasn't written, and that's as far as I'm concerned. What really goes on in that flight beyond what they say that happened. That's my favorite Malekith moment because I think it is pivotal um, for understanding his character. My favorite Malekith moment that I think demonstrates like his cruelty as far as like making sure he himself survives and doesn't give a damn is when um, Epidemius, the big bad tally man of Nurgle himself, the super uh, lesser demon special character, showed mm -hmm. up in Nagarond and was like, Malekith, you have a debt to pay. Um, I've come to collect because Malekith makes a lot of bargains with demons to further his own power. And a big fight breaks out, and Malekith realizes he can't get rid of Epidemius because he is very difficult to kill. 
and he's just got a bunch of Nurgle guys, and they're just like, we'll just sit here and infect you. So Malekith bargains 1,000 Dark Elf souls in exchange for to settle his debt, and uh, Epidemius is like, done! <laughs> and it's like, damn, Malekith is fucking cold, dude! <laughs> um, um, one last one there was, have I seen the Dark Elf faction trailer and uh, Total War Warhammer 2? And what did I think of Malekith's portrayal and voice? So I... I found Malekith's voice to be exactly what everyone would sort of expect in that it was booby and look at me in my armor and I'm sort of English. <laughs> it, 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 it felt much like most of Total War Warhammer's elves, very human. Yeah. Um, and I found that uh, particularly with Marathi chatting away, her part as well was superhuman. Um, for me, I think I would have tried to uh, very much make him appear either one of two extremes one broken or on the other side so you know proper dark raider broken wheezy i'm melting inside actually awful but with a, an underpinning <laughs> of alienness or on the other side beautiful you can hear the uh phoenix king to come coming through it but the twit bisted that the bisted the twisted bitterness in his tone coming through would have been i think much more interesting but instead, they went for almost a standard boom, 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 deep voice, nasty, boom, 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 which was fine. Yeah, I, I felt they could have gone elsewhere. It would have been nice to see them lean into like he is in agony, like yeah. he is always in pain, like he moves through sheer force of fucking will. Um, yeah, you, you just imagine screaming through everything that he's doing. Uh, yeah, you know, they, they, they I, went I, for like we want him to be as badass as possible, which you know, yeah. fine. It's a fight. It's um, you know, but it it's was a fighting such a game. Bland, a bland badass. Um, where I would have loved him to, to almost epitomize that rage and that power that he has and has to have to exist. Um, that would have been quite fun. Yeah, I. Uh, one of these days. One of these days. <laughs> have you ever seen the? Uh, have you ever seen the uh, chaos? Um, chaos. Oh my gosh. Chaos, chaos, Mark chaos? of Chaos. Have you ever seen the Mark of Chaos yes, moment chaos with Malekith? Yeah, yeah. That's even it, sillier. Yeah. Like yeah, the Malekith that scene, they were like, we need his voice to be the basis bass that ever based. <laughs> it's so <laughs> silly. It but, is. Um, uh, anyway, uh, thank you all. Follow up question. Oh my gosh. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll catch letter. I'll answer that personally because that's fine. Um, okay, cool. Thank you all so much for watching. This is way over time. So uh, <laughs> we hope you all enjoyed yourselves. We hope you had a lot of fun. We will be back next week with something else. I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do yet. Um, we might do gods. We might do another character. I saw someone asking about Manfred, and I'm like, ooh, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. But we might, we might try and, one. yeah, we might try and have it like a character and then a subject and then a character and then a subject. That's uh, that that nice way, idea, doesn't it? Yeah, that way it's kind of a, a, a mix. So thank you all so much for joining us. Once again, if you haven't checked it out, you can find links all over the place. Check out Lawhammer and all that stuff. I'm I'm about to start doing, um, I'm not exactly sure I'm going to format it yet, but I'm about to start doing streams where I'm going to just be talking about Lawhammer stuff because the lore implications are fucking wild and I'm having a lot of fun with it. And um, I really want to explore those um, so that Andy can just watch them and laugh about how we're all wrong or making weird assumptions. Um, but uh, yeah. Thank you again for being here. Andy, any last little things before we go? Malekith is awesome. Ignore yes. the propaganda. Yes. And once again, uh, <laughs> the lore is at the end of the day, what you want it to be. Um, yeah, totally. like we, I like, you know, we obviously kind of know our shit in a sense, but, um, 
Games Workshop, as much as it's a goofy sentence, canon is whatever you want it to be. So, like, you know, allow this to inform your world about Malekith, but uh, do your own explorations. Have fun with it. Yeah, we almost certainly skipped a whole ton of shit we could have said. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like but Malekith's agent. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. All the atrocities. <laughs> All the atrocities. So Take uh, that iron rick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for watching. Bye, guys. <laughs>